Ladies and gentlemen, here we are with Real Deal Talk. My man in the flesh, Ryan. So, Ryan, you guys know how I do it. We're going to dig into his backstory a little bit. And let me tell you something, folks. You're going to want to strap in for this one. I know I say it all the time, but Ryan and I met, um, to give you a little context, we met quite recently, really, within the last year or two, right? Mm-hmm. Probably last, maybe the last two or three years. Yeah. <clears throat> so we kind of knew of each other through the powerlifting community. Right. And I can't even really say that I'm part of the powerlifting community, other than the fact that I dabbled in it for like a year, year and a half, with our mutual friend Chris Gordard, right? Yeah. So he was both of our trainers in powerlifting. And then the guy who actually introduced us was Adam Lighty, okay? And Adam Lighty is a world-ranked powerlifter. So I'm going to throw that in there for my guy, Adam Lighty, because I know he's going to enjoy that he just got shouted out on the podcast. (laughs) World-ranked powerlifting. What he's doing now, I don't know. But that's another story. So anyway, Adam sent Ryan into uh, my mattress store. So Ryan and I were chopping it up when he was came in for a mattress one day. And I t- told him about the podcast. And, uh, you know, Ryan said, uh, well, man, I've got a hell of a story that I'd love to share. And I'm like, really? So he started to tell me for a few minutes, just even a few minutes of it. I'm like, whoa, 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 stop. Just stop. You're coming in. Don't tell me anything else. Because I always like it to be fresh when people come in. Sure. I don't like to hear the whole story ahead of time because then it's not as authentic as I like to dig and kind of make it uh, organic. So, guys, Ryan's story is I only heard a few minutes of it so far. Ryan and I really barely know each other. We've met in person maybe a couple of times. Mm-hmm bought a mattress, that's it. So you guys are going to watch us get to know each other, and I'm going to dig through this story, and this is going to inspire a lot of people. I can feel it, so dig in here. So, Ryan, welcome to the show. Appreciate you coming in, bro. I know you're a busy man, so I appreciate you, you know, parting your schedule for me. All right, so first and foremost, as we always do it, let's go back a little bit. Let's go back to some, like, where were you born and raised? Wow, so kind of all over. Yeah. Uh, that one's a, a bit of a varied answer. Um, born in Texas. Okay. Uh, spent my young years there. Uh, my parents divorced really early. About what age? Uh, I was one. Like one and a half, my parents split. And uh, my dad's an airline pilot, um, so a lot of moving around with him. I spent the earlier years with my mom. Uh, I moved in with my father when I was 12 and really grew up with him down in the Florida Keys. Uh, so spent a lot of time on boats, a lot of time scuba diving, um, and a lot of time messing with computers. So what do you mean on boats? What does that mean? Uh, well, my dad started, um, my dad's a big, uh, you know, outdoor water sports guy. Uh, and he started, my sister and I both uh, scuba diving with him and my stepmom when we were eight years old. Um, actually, way back before that, back in Texas, when he was flying out of DFW, uh, he taught me how to water ski when I was three. So, wow. I've, I've, yeah, I've been on the water uh, pretty much my whole life. And uh, eight, started scuba diving, 10, open water certified. Uh, 15 rescue diver and, and most of my dive master, um, done a few thousand dives and you really know, first made it on a bunch of charter boats, um, did a bunch of spear fishing and that kind of stuff too. So I, I used to love, still love, uh, the fisheries in South Florida and, and being outside in the back country and on the ocean. That's, that's where my heart is. And, you know, that's probably where I'll end up retiring one day. You're kidding me. See, mm-hmm. already we're into the story and who would have thunk it, dude? You're a freaking, like a rescue diver qualified so hold on. Sounds cooler than it is. So the no, rest it is cool. It's to totally cool. So this is in uh, Florida, where you got the majority of your diving uh, experience. Now, yep. Did your sister go that far as well? No, she didn't go as far as I did. Um, she she dove as much as I did with the family. Um, I just kind of took it a little bit further uh, yeah. recreationally and um, you know into adulthood. And it's been so many years since I dove. Now, yeah. Um, did, <laughs> I, 
Sorry, did you ever think about going the, like the military for, for like uh, underwater demolition? You know, I thought about it. I actually got sent to a military academy in high did school, really? and we'll get there, I'm yeah. sure, at some point oh, in the yeah. story. But uh, there was a time when uh, I looked at doing EOD. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going to be an EOD tech, a bomb tech. Um, yeah. You know, they had a big sign-on bonus, and they were offering me some rank because I did um, – I, I got like a perfect score in the ASVAB. Like all seven categories got like 99th percentile, so they were they were hounding me pretty hard. Um, so but no, I never went that You way. actually took the test. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so they were hounding you, and, and then, you know, again, we're going we're gonna to get back to around that. But, yeah. So the, and then you just said, nah, not, not for me. Yeah, I ended up staying private sector. Um, pretty glad that I did that, too. That, you know, yeah. It ended up working out for me. And, and I found out later, uh, not too long after that, that the attrition rate for uh, EOD techs in, in Iraq was, like, higher than any other military occupational specialty. Oh, really? So and like, a pretty high chance of going and getting blown up, you know? Yes. And then, so define uh, uh, the EOD, what what that stands for, mm. the acronym. Explosive Ordnance Disposal. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. So basically, you were an underwater uh, diver that would put bombs on boats underneath the water. Well, there was no underwater component to that. So I, n- I never looked at, at diving professionally. It was just okay. the military academy kind of um, <clears throat> had me tracking towards that. And it would have been like, did you ever see the Hurt Locker? Yeah. All right, the yep. bomb suit and the guy, that's, that's what he is. Gotcha. He's okay. combat engineering EOD tech. Ah, okay, got it, got it. Okay, so... And then you also mentioned that you were uh, involved with computers a lot. What does that mean? How'd that happen? So, I mean, really, that's kind of the, um, the crux of my story, right? Yeah. And uh, I, I had this seminal moment when I was like nine years old. Yeah. And I uh, played a lot of video games. I was kind of an indoor kid at the time. Um, you know, all this outdoor stuff really happened when I moved in with my dad. And uh, I was playing Final Fantasy VII on uh, PlayStation, and I wanted to look up, like, a walkthrough. It's like, a four-disc game. Really and I always forget game. that you're really young. Yeah. Like, that everybody's so much younger than me. Yeah. I, sh- I should say that. So the fact that you... I'm like, wait, you had it back when you were a child that was around PlayStation? But it was. Yeah. All right, so go ahead. Yeah, it was. So this was, like... <clears throat> I, was, I was nine years old, and we're on AOL on dial-up, right? Yeah. Um, broadband doesn't exist yet. Right. Um, and we're not even on, like, 56K. I think we're, like, 28.8. Whatever and, uh, that means. Yeah, <laughs> 28 baud. Uh, it's old modems. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure. And I'll uh, take your word for it. Right. So I'm looking up a walkthrough for Final Fantasy VII, and I'm looking at the computer screen, and, and I just had this... I had to know how it got there. Like, how does this go from a person's mind who's just sitting there, like, in front of a computer, and now I can see it? You know, now it comes up on the screen in front of me. Like, how does that happen? And, uh, like, I had to know. You know what I mean? Like, I was always taking shit apart when I was a kid, like, remotes and, like, all that kind of stuff. But um, when my brain gets pulling into thread, I have a really hard time disengaging. And uh, I got my mom to take me to Barnes & Noble. And I pestered her until she bought me um, books on like HTML, C, Perl, um, and CGI. And I started learning how to program. <laughs> and what age, what age is this? I was nine. nine. Um, I wasn't doing so much programming. I was doing a lot more HTML at that age. It's yeah. just tags is a lot simpler. But um, that quickly grew um, into you know other things. And uh, that was kind of the beginning of a lifelong path, um, you know, which has resulted in, in where I am today. I, I hold a leadership position in cybersecurity. Um, and that's, uh, you know, but that, that, that really happened organically from yeah. a young age. And it's just been a passion that um, I haven't been able or, or had any desire to shake since. Um, but, yeah, it started when I was nine. And um, shortly after that, I was uh, writing websites for um, whoever I could get to pay me. And then I started building computers. And um, then I started learning how to break security. And, uh, what, what age? What, what age did you start like actually doing websites and everything? Was that right away? Like ten, eleven? Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, like nine, ten. Oh. 
Yeah, I had this acupuncturist, and I did like a website for him. And I had really bad asthma and stuff when I was a kid. Really? So I used to have like all kinds of, you know, my mom would, would get me to see all kinds of um, therapists and different, you know, and I had this acupuncturist for a while who was really, really good. And he was one of the first websites I did. No kidding. Yeah. And then, so this is like 11, 12. And then, so what were your friends at this point? How was the, and how did the divorce affect you? Well, you were so young, you didn't even know. Right, right. Um, how did being separate households, how did that affect you as a child? Did you even think about it? No, you don't think about it so much as a kid, right? right. And um, my dad did a really good job of, uh, you know, being the other parent that didn't have custody and not making it toxic and not um, making it hard for the kids and making it our problem. Yeah. Um, so I had all these instances growing up where people would like adults would be talking to me and they would essentially be apologizing, right. For my circumstance, like, Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh yeah, exactly. Like, Oh, you're going through so hard. And I never understood what any of them were talking about yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. cause you're just a kid. It's just your life. And, uh, you know, and you look back and you realize like, okay, maybe things weren't as easy for me as they could have been in like the nuclear family or, or whatever, like leave it to beaver. But, um, you know, I also was, uh, largely surrounded by people who love me. Um, you know, a father who was, uh, very, very involved. Yeah. Um, you know, a mom who was, who was very involved also. That's um, great. I have a strained relationship with her now, but, <clears throat> um, I'm sure know. we'll get into that. Yeah. Maybe yeah, a little I'm, bit. I'm sure we will. <laughs> um, you know, but it, it's one of those things, right? I had several stepdads and I had good ones and I had bad ones. And, uh, I knew growing up, um, that I knew how to be a great father. You know, I always wanted to be a father. Uh, I knew that I was going to be a dad. I knew I was going to be a husband. And I, you know, my dad's my best friend, right? And, and that's because of how your dad was with you. Yeah, he's my role model. You know, he's always kind of been like my true north. He's been a place where uh, I could come no matter how bad my life had gotten and no matter how bad the decisions I was making were. And he, while he did cut me off from support when, when it needed to be done, he never cut me off from his ear. You know, my father was always there. It didn't matter what time. I'm going to get emotional. didn't matter what place. didn't matter what I was doing. My yeah. dad would answer the phone, and he had words for me. Um, and that saved my life a couple times, you know? Wow. <clears throat> wow. But uh, so, you, you know, I had two Christmases, two birthdays, and, you know, multiple sets of grandparents and all that stuff growing up. And uh, I didn't think too much about it. Um, looking back on it now, they did a really good job of, uh, you know, making it work for what it was. Hopefully my kids don't have the same experience you know i'd like for them to to have continuity right and so with on that note um the uh were your parents living in separate states mm -hmm. they were so she was still in texas yeah so they were they were in the same state for a while um when we were real young my mom she's in valley ranch uh near dallas and my dad was uh based in dfw and and kind of everywhere that there's a major airport um all the airline employees tend to move to like one area you know, we call it the AAPJs, these American Airlines. We call yeah. it the American Airlines projects in, in DFW were Grapevine. Right? Right. Everyone lived on Grapevine Lake. Yeah. Uh, so my dad lived out there. <clears throat> and then, um, let's see, my mom moved us to Houston for a few months. What did she do? What was she doing for a living? Uh, it's, it's hard to answer that question. Okay. If you ask her, uh, she's got uh, several different answers and, and several different degrees from several different places. and. Mm and all kinds of stuff. Uh, she was involved in sales, okay. um, you know, and, and I think she did pretty well. She's brilliant. My mom's brilliant. She's, she's a gifted woman um, intellectually. Um, <clears throat> and how, how about your, yeah. Yeah, she, I don't think she experiences emotions uh, quite the same way that the rest of us do. Ah, and so, uh, 
Yeah, no, sorry, I lost my place a little bit. Yeah, it was, it? It, was about, it was about your mom. Like um, we were talking about, they lived separately. Oh yeah, so uh, we did that. I texted. Then she moved us to Washington State, Pacific Northwest. Now, why was she moving so much? Um, some of it had to do with uh, men that she was marrying, um, and, and then some of it. I think the I think the Washington thing had a genesis and a job opportunity. I'm not really a hundred percent on that. She yeah. married this guy while we were there, who was a VP of a multinational cement company based in France, and uh, he had some health issues. And I was far enough ahead in school that I ended up skipping. Um, seventh grade to go move around uh, a few places in Europe uh, with her while she took care of my then stepfather who was having multiple bypass surgeries oh, and, wow. and things of that nature. Um, so then came back from that. And uh, so how often have we seen your pops at this point? Fairly frequently. I mean, um, at least a couple times a year, even okay. when we were like all the way across the country, because at that time we're like, you know, Washington state and he's in South Florida, Yeah, you know? Um, so it was as far apart as you could really get and still be in the continental U.S. Um, but we still saw him several times a year. Um, you know, we would fly out there or he would fly and see us, a, a airline family, right? Yeah. So me and my sister would yeah. fly alone um, a lot. And uh, my mom and I were constantly having problems, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, I was a very intelligent kid um, with, a, with, a, with a high RPM brain and yeah. not enough to do. And I caused problems. Mm -hmm. And I can only imagine how hard I was to deal with. <laughs> uh, she... Well, yeah, we need to get into this. So she um, <clears throat> had a lot of trouble uh, dealing with me. And the mechanism that my mother would use for that would be to open up the DSM-4 and self-diagnose me with some condition and then take me to a specialist, convince them of her diagnosis and have me medicated. Uh, and I ended up on a, uh, a pretty intense battery of medications um, at a very young age. Wow. And when I moved in with my dad... Uh, he called up the pediatrician. He said, hey, listen, my son's on all these medicines that his mother put him on. Um, I don't think it's right. I want to wean him off, but, you know, I'd like some medical guidance. And uh, <clears throat> the doctor told him uh, that if he hadn't called ahead and expressed his intentions in that manner, that he probably would have called CPS on him. Um, I was on rage control drugs for prison inmates. Uh, I was on lithium for a little while. Um, it, yeah, the was, stuff your mom got you on? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was on uh, uh, Buspar lithium, different versions of uh, ADD meds, um, Lamictal for a while, which is a neuroinhibitor for um, uh, like seizures, right? Um, she had me diagnosed with Tourette's and bipolar and um, just like all kinds of shit. And uh, what ages? I mean, this is all before 10, right? Before <clears throat> 10? Yeah, because I moved in with my dad at 12. And, uh, you know, I, I just went to all these shrinks and all these people and... Um, I, I, so some, some addicts are born and some addicts are made. And I think I was a little bit of both. Really? Yeah. Okay, get into that. What, what do you, the, um, amounts and types of drugs that I was on as a kid, I think definitely set, um, some chemical seeking pathways, um, some habits in my head. And then another one of the, um, unfortunate consequences of that entire scenario is that, um, I am actually very ADD <laughs> and yeah. I'm not ADHD. I don't have the hyperactive thing, but um, focus, right? Um, have the ability to uh, kind of laser focus in on one thing, um, but to the exclusion of everything else that's going around, around that building could be falling down around me. And if I'm fastened in, like, I don't know that it's happening and yeah. I don't care. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the opposite end of that is just inability to like anything. Yeah. So the baby got thrown out with the bathwater. Um, the Adderall went with the rest of the drugs. And, uh, 
you know, I was a very non-traditional kid. I was a very non-traditional intellect. Um, I was gifted uh, with, with, with an intellect and uh, square peg round hole. Um, public school was a fucking nightmare for me. Really? I, oh, God. I, so just cussing. I don't know. Just yeah, yeah. Let it fly. Um, yeah, public school was an absolute nightmare for me. Uh, the public educational system wasn't well, built for guys like me. Well, <laughs> I mean, to elaborate, this, elaborate. To this day, um, when I have to go to school for anything for one of my kids, I'm instantly on edge. I hate being on public school property. I do not like fluorescent lights, and every single employee of that institution is already behind the ball with me. They got they got problems, so it's not. Um, I, I it just I was told my whole life. Uh, Things like I wasn't smart or I didn't understand numbers or I wasn't well behaved enough or why couldn't I just do this or why couldn't I pay attention? And, uh, you know, I actually grew up believing that I was bad at math. <laughs> and, um, you Which know, is probably the opposite of the freaking truth. It is. I'm, I'm very good with numbers. And uh, I used to like in AP calculus in high school, for example, I failed the class and uh, I got a five on the exam. Right, so I got a perfect score on the exam, but I I, I failed the class. When you got I a left, perfect score on the exam. Yeah, and I, and like I taught everyone in the class how to do it. I couldn't think. <sighs> I could not think the way that they wanted me to. Uh, I they wanted they they had a very specific uh, prescriptive formula for how you were supposed to write and show all of your work, and it was supposed to be this steps in this order. And if you couldn't do it, then you were wrong, you know. But I would look at a problem, and then a few minutes later, I would give an answer. You know, and my answer would be right, yeah, um, almost all the time. But because I couldn't show the way that they wanted me to, uh, I was told that I was wrong or wow. that I didn't know how to do it. And there's a fundamental like cognitive dissonance when y you understand the mechanics of how something works in your head, but you're told um, by someone who's supposed to be an authority um, that you don't, right? Yeah. And uh, it's kind of like a intellectual gaslighting, you know, in a way. Like yes. it took me a long time to realize um, that I'm not just good with words. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Yeah. And uh, it was one of the, I had this really uh, powerful moment with my, my older daughter uh, not too long ago, uh, within the last couple of years, uh, over math. Yeah. And uh, she was, you know, she had math homework and she couldn't get it and she was falling apart and she was very upset and she was crying and, and the whole thing. And I looked at her and I told her, Zoe, <clears throat> math is uh, not like most of the other things in school. When you know the numbers, no one can tell you you're wrong. Math is objective. Math fits in a box. Math is uh, iterative, you know. Um, English, that's subjective, right? Um, grammar, a little bit more objective, but, you know, we have things like the Oxford comma, right? So we can get subjective with that as well. Math is not subjective, and there's a power in that. Yeah. And when you, when you understand it, <clears throat> fundamentally, no one can ever tell you you're wrong. And, like, I can see her face just changing while I'm, like, explaining this to her. And uh, she really sank her teeth into it, and she, her math score shot up. She's, like, way ahead of the curve now. Uh, but, we, you know, every once in a while she's having a hard time, and I calm her down, and I take her back to my room, and I get out the whiteboard, and we whiteboard her math. And, you know, I'm an engineer, right? Yeah. So yeah. at a heart, um, that's how I like to solve those problems. But just teaching her, like, don't get upset about this. Right. Get good at it. Yeah. You know, because there's a power in it that yes. no one can ever take away from you. Because numbers are numbers. Yep. Yeah. The numbers don't lie. The numbers are numbers. There's no, it's a fascinating viewpoint of that, bro. And I've never even heard this before, but it totally makes sense. Right. Okay, so, so go back to the to the child, the, the, the public schooling thing, because you were constantly told yep. just because you didn't fit in with the way that they say you should be, you were deemed abnormal, right? Not smart. Right. Right? Go on. Uh, well, so <clears throat> I, I, they convinced me I wasn't good with numbers. Everyone knew I was very smart, right? Yeah. That's, uh, and, and that's not, um, you know, I'm 
people are very good at some things. People are not very good at other things. Yeah. I was gifted with intelligence. It's one of the things I'm good at. I'm, I'm very terrible at, at many other things, but I, I've been a smart um, guy. Yeah. And it's yeah. been not difficult to see for most of my life. But, you know, it was almost a feeling of desperation. I can remember sitting, even in Gifted, right? Because I was in Gifted my whole life, yeah. and that's supposed to be, like, better. I can remember sitting in Gifted and hanging my pinky off the edge of a school desk and holding a textbook and being like, I'm going to break my fucking finger just so I can leave for a couple days because I just don't want to be here, you know? And I, like, and I and I tried to, right? Like, I didn't quite hard enough to do it. But I would physically hurt myself, right, to get out of being in school. Just to not have to sit there in those classrooms. And I made these teachers pay for it, dude. It wasn't yeah. like, I really did. I was such a pain in the ass. Um, I was very, very smart. And I was super, super open to any opportunity to prove that I knew something you didn't. And like, it was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't a fun kid to have in the classroom no. for like most of these teachers. Because, you know, I was objectively more intelligent than a lot of them. So it was yeah. like, I would run circles around them. <laughs> most of them. Oh my God. <laughs> you must have been a nightmare for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Um, I had a chip on my shoulder. You know? Yeah, they made me feel terrible, and so I, I um, tried to make them feel stupid. <clears throat> so, and what what did your mom play in this in the, as the childhood? Because, and then was it the result of what the school was saying? And then she says you need medication. Um, I think it was really more the result of her not being able to control me. Um, so my mom um, was dad aware of this? Like when he was across the country, were you? It, they didn't become. Like, how do you have that conversation? With your, you know, like I didn't know what was going on. Right. I just knew I was supposed you to take these I, pills, right? Yeah. Like I was supposed to see this doctor, and you know, like I. Um, <clears throat> my mom uh, was. You know, my dad told me one day. He said, "You know, Ryan, I think your mom may have made a mistake by telling you how smart you were. You know, what I mean, she should have told you that you were intelligent. She never should have told you how smart you were." Because she used to sit there and tell me how what a genius I was and, yeah. you know, blah, 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 and, like, all these things. And it really does kind of um, set you apart uh, conceptually. And it's also not like I'm – like, I am smart, you know, but I'm not, um, you know, I'm not, like, a generational um, – uh, genius or, yeah. or, you know, um, anything like that. I'm not special. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. I'm just a smart guy. Um, and, and she took that to such a uh, – pathologically like almost yeah. uh, unfair place you know and then there was like a lot of like you know my mom does really good with children and special needs uh special needs adults people that um need her um mm. you know um she has a bit of a uh, problem with men um just as like a species yeah <laughs> and yeah. uh um, i don't know that she was ever uh super thrilled that uh, i was born one right Got it. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, no doubt in my mind how much she loved me. Um, she does. Uh, and as a young child, she was a really good mother um, in, in several senses. Uh, but, you know, she was a human and she had some damage and um, she was unwilling and, and remains unwilling to um, face a lens at her own damage. And it's easier um, if you can attribute things externally. You know, it's easier to accept uh, that I have bipolar and Tourette's than that you don't have enough patience um, to deal with me and parent me in a way that's healthy. Yeah. Right? Um, so, you know, and, and I, I do think a lot of that is the genesis of, of kind of my drug-seeking behavior, um, or at least. Um, Go back to what you said mm -hmm. on that note. You said you think some addicts are born and made. Mm -hmm. I've never heard that before in my life. Dig into that. Give me a dig into that just a little bit. Crack baby comes out the womb wanting crack. He didn't have true. a choice. You know, I have uh, I've met guys in recovery that tell stories about being in a crib 
at 18 months old and their uh, older siblings using a shotgun to blow weed smoke in their face because they're easier to babysit when they're high, you know? And people whose emotional development arrested before the age of two because they were put on chemicals. Um, so, you know, and, and maybe, uh, you know, maybe these people end up there anyways, but they weren't given the opportunity to find out, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, there's no, there's no excuse. So I, I, um, I'm a little bit different than, than a lot of people in recovery. Uh, I, so today I live a very, very normal looking life. Yes. Um, if I want a beer, I drink a beer. Um, I smoke weed almost daily. Yeah. Um, occasionally, uh, you know, I, I think that there's a value, um, societally in some, um, organic hallucinogenics. Um, I think that the therapeutic and, uh, uh, prescriptive medical and psychological benefits of those things are being explored a lot more these days like the mushrooms yeah i think there's a place for that in society um and that's pretty contrary to um you know a lot of the dogma or dogma that's unfair a lot of uh the structure around recovery as it exists today right Right. um so i'm not so much a traditional case in that sense and i don't know that i could really in good conscience recommend my path uh you know, just because I, I've known so many guys uh, for whom my path means death, you know, yes. and I've buried so many friends really uh, over the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, over the last several years, um, you know, and, and for me personally, I needed the program. You know, I needed N.A. Um, and I needed that like very by the book lifestyle for several years to get to a place where um, I could be healthy again. And I don't know what separates um you know, me from one of my buddies who, you know, takes a hit of a joint and three hours later has a needle in his arm and six hours after that is, you know, back on another federal charge because I know a bunch of those guys too. Um, Or, you know, guys like Danny. Uh, It's a kid I went to rehab with. He's a good kid. And uh, he was a sweet kid and he didn't deserve to die. Mm. He was a better guy than I was. And he died young. And I used to think that I knew all the things that it took. Like when I first got clean, like you need to, you need to work the steps. You need to have a sponsor. You got to be willing to give up everything. Got to be, you know, there's like, and if you do these things, and then there were guys that had all those things, right? Like Danny, and still fucking died. And uh, sorry, man, that one. <clears throat> he always gets to me. He didn't deserve to die. He was a better person than I did. How, how old is I am? Uh, he was 26. Ooh, <clears throat> man. And, uh, you know, so anyways, um, it's not, there's not, there isn't a list, JD, you know, and, uh, there is more to it than we understand. And I think that there are some, um, basic requirements. Um, you have to be willing to be honest and accountable to things outside of yourself. You know, I I do believe that you have to have a relationship with some kind of higher power. Um, if you can't acknowledge, um, something bigger than yourself, mm. um, then you're doomed to failure cause you've already failed. You know what I mean? Like you couldn't do it and like you got, you ended up a junkie, <laughs> right? And so like get past that right now. Um, but then there's intangibles that I don't understand. Um, you know, because, uh, I'll leave here today and you know, this weekend, uh, I'll smoke a joint with a buddy, you know, and I'll be fine. Um, and that's not the case, uh, for many of us or even most of us. You know, hundred percent. Yeah. Oh, man, I, and I, dude, your your viewpoint here is it, one which I've never heard before. Because um, you said there's intangibles here. You yeah. can't just go through these steps. There's more involved. Right. And something you said. I'm gonna. We're gonna come back to what you just said about 
believing in a higher power. Because mm-hmm. I've, I've thought about this before. Yep. What do you, th- give, me, give me your thoughts on that. Like, what do you mean by that? Like, if, unless you're guided by, like, if you're just talking to me about that. So, I mean. Like, to get through it. So logical, they, I, I like to break things down into um, the, the smallest acceptable logical pieces when they're complex, right? So, like, we can acknowledge a couple things about an addict seeking recovery. And that's that uh, one of those things is that the choices they make um, led them here. Right. Yeah. Um, and that when they're in charge, um, they made those choices. Right. Um, they don't want to be addicts. I don't know an addict who's like, yeah, I want to be a junkie piece of shit who constantly gets arrested and drives away everyone who loves and cares about me. Right. So if you don't want to be an addict and you've already proven that with you in charge making the choices, you're going to be an addict. One's missing from the equation. From the equation, right? there has to be another component. And uh, you know, the higher power thing gets so loaded, and it gets so thrown around in so many cavalier, stupid ways. You know, people talk about, "Oh, my higher power is a doorknob because I couldn't open the door without a doorknob." Well, okay, asshole. You know, whatever. Um, <clears throat> you know, but like, there are things like, are you more powerful than the wind? You know, have you ever been on a boat on the reef when a storm was coming in and the waves are breaking 15 feet over your head and the lightning striking the water next to you and the thunder shaking your heart and your chest? You know, are you more powerful than that? Um, you know, and it can be God, too, and it can be a Judeo-Christian God uh, if that's, you know, if that's your belief structure, that where you're, that's where you're comfortable. Um, it's not for me uh, particularly, but I, I also, uh, you know, my fundamental uh, issue with a lot of dogma around religion and spirituality has to do with intolerance of other people's beliefs, right? Like, how can you um, purport to be of a godly, um, you know, uh, complexion, manner, personality, uh, but then also um, criticize, castigate, or otherwise um, cast out people who believe differently than you, right? Like, uh, when I'm motoring out into the sunrise on my boat, and I see the beauty of the sun coming up over the ocean, then I can feel my gratitude for the world and everything around me. Um, I see God in that, you know, and, and I see God in that every bit as, uh, validly as, you know, uh, a Sikh praying to the, you know, in meditation time or, um, you know, uh, a seminary student leaving, uh, you know, seminary school praying to Swedish Jesus on the cross. Yeah. Um, uh, all of those things are valid. Yeah. Um, and so for, for me, uh, my God probably seems a little bit more like, uh, you know, Christian God, intelligent design, um, those kinds of things. But without an acknowledgement of things greater than yourself, where are you going to uh, find or acquire the power required um, to get past your own inability to self-actuate? You know, so th- yeah. there also needs to be an understanding um, that... Your, your your answers don't work, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so there has to be something bigger. There has to be something better. And my God uh, wants good for me and wants good for my life, wants good for my family and the people around me. And I see his intention for me um, as I walk through this life, you know. Um, there are doors that are open for me uh, that I didn't seek. They're very clearly the way forward. You know, I've achieved more success and happiness, um, submitting to the will, uh, of my higher power than uh, I ever did, um, fighting it, you know? So, so there is an element of understanding, um, how to surrender, um, how to give up in order to survive, you know, and, and relearn, uh, and move forward. Um, so without like 
being able to attach or align yourself with something more powerful than yourself? How are you going to beat the circumstances that you've created? Wow. We're good on volume here at the audio. Okay, I just want to make sure, bro. Because this is freaking beautiful. Oh, man. I got goosebumps, dude. I could listen to you. This could be, we could go eight hours here. Do we have enough, do we have enough batteries for eight hours? All right. Oh, okay, so, because you're so intelligently just spoken and just unbelievable. I can't, I can't get enough of this. I feel like I'm going on a lot of tangents. What? No, I like dude, I hope this I'm is amazing. Telling a I, story with some continuity. I apologize for the scan. No, 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 no. This is beautiful. Okay, so let's let's go back, mm -hmm. and I don't want you to laugh about it, but go back mm -hmm. to where your mom was getting you through all this medication. Then mm -hmm. you went to dad, mm -hmm. and did they wean you off the medication? So give, let's get let's go back to there, yep. and then we'll okay go. So uh, wean me off of everything, um, and like I said, what the, did mom say about that? Was she like, no, no, no? You know, honestly, I don't remember, um, and I don't know if it was a part of a narrative between her and I, or just my father and her. Um, I, I don't know, and I think at that point I, I really didn't care. You know, I, I was very over what my mom thought about yeah. all of that. Um, you know, and, and the truth, JD, is I don't have a lot of memories of my childhood. Okay. Um, I have like specific events um, before, sure, before moving in with my father. Um, I don't remember a lot of my childhood with my mom. Okay. Um, I remember specific events. I remember specific events of abuse. Um, I remember kind of specific abuse? times of happiness. Can you happiness. talk about that at all? Uh, yeah, uh, physical, right? Um, you know, for example, uh, we had these extended grandparents, uh, they would call extended grandparents, um, people that were friends of the family, uh, they would babysit for a bunch of, you know, family's kids and everyone called them grandma and grandpa. And, uh, it's one of those, <laughs> this actually, I, I came to realize this was abuse much later. Uh, it, it's just funny when it's happening to you, it's not like before you don't know, you yeah, know, and normal. then you're like telling a story 10 years later and you're like, wow, that's really fucked up. Um, yeah. you know, old Texas, uh, couple, uh, not shy about hitting or anything like that. Um, this old man, he had a big belt buckle and he would put it in the oven, um, heat it up before he'd hit me with it, chase me around the backyard, beat me, um, <clears throat> that kind of stuff. Um, you know, uh, did your mom know about it? Not until many years later. And I believe that too, because of the way she reacted. She was, um, you never told her she was distraught. I told her, uh, I told her as an adult, <clears throat> she you, never, you didn't tell her when it was happening. No. Why not? Didn't know. I didn't. I was just getting spanked. I'd yeah. been naughty. You know. I mean, I deserved it. Uh, right. Like it was. That was just what it was. You know. I didn't realize. Yeah. <laughs> you're. Uh, you know. You're uh, six, seven, eight, whatever. You don't was realize that? you're being abused. It's just you're getting spanked. You know. And then you look back on it and you're like, wow. Most people don't get spanked with a heated belt buckle. You know. <laughs> so like. Uh, and with your sister, <clears throat> same thing with your sister. I don't think so. Okay. Um, my sister was a much easier kid to deal with. Uh, I love my sister, and um, I'm extremely proud of my sister. And our relationship has gotten really good as adults. Um, when I was in treatment, she was the only one who came to see me. Wow. The only one. Only and my, one. And my mom lived 15 minutes away. Um, <clears throat> and she didn't come see you? No, no. And I asked her to. And I sent her invitations to the family orientation. And I called her and left voicemails every week and all that. Um but my sister was also very much a square peg in a square hole. Uh, the public educational system uh, worked out really well for her. Uh, she went from, and, and it, which is not to take away from her diligence or her intelligence. She's extremely disciplined, and, yeah. and she works harder than uh, just about anyone I've ever known. But, you know, she went from uh, high school 
to undergrad at University of Miami. From undergrad, she went directly into her PhD in molecular genetics. From her PhD, she went directly into med school, and then she got a residency at a top three dermatology program. Um, you know, she is in uh, Arkansas now. Just you know, I, I think like Scrooge McDuck, like bathing in her pile of gold coins. Really? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, but she's recently uh, a mother for the first time and Aww. a nephew out there. Yeah, yeah. I married a great guy named Don and, um, you know, just super proud of her. But I, I think uh, in, in instances where, like, punishment and things like that were happening, uh, it just didn't happen to her as much. She didn't piss people off like I did. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. So get to the point where you moved in with Dad. What was the final straw? Did he make that move? Did you? No. So my mom and I would get into these drop down or, you know, knock down drag outs and man, this big screaming fight. And I can't remember what it was about. I remember walking down the hallway towards my room. She kicked me in the back and, uh, I think, wow, you actually just kicked me. And, uh, you know, my dad told me many years later that my mom would get all worked up and call her, call him all the time. Yeah. I'm sending Ryan to you. I can't I take this kid. And he refused. He said that he wouldn't take me unless she sent both of us. Uh, she had to send my sister too. Um, and finally one day, I guess my mom had had enough, uh, she couldn't deal with me anymore. So she agreed to send Lindsay too. And so, uh, she sent both of us off. Uh, I was 12, Lindsay was 13. What, what did Lindsay say? I don't remember. She probably resented me thinking back on it, you know, cause it wasn't, we weren't leaving because of her, <laughs> you right. know? Um, and I, and I wouldn't blame her for feeling that way. Um, How'd you feel about it? I was distraught. You know, my mom didn't want me. And I was a little boy who had been brought up by his mom, you know, um, and had been emotionally gaslighted by his mom and had been made to create a very dependent relationship by his mom. And so it was, I was, I sobbed the whole way there. The whole flight, I couldn't stop. You know, wow. uh, the flight attendants couldn't console me. Sister couldn't console me. My mom didn't want me. You yeah. know, that was what I felt. Right. You know, um, and that was tough. Um, and I think it's that, you know, you know, my dad told me early on, he's like, I think you, uh, <laughs> he sees me out in the pool making out with some girl from middle school. I think it was like 14 or something. And we're heads going crazy and all that. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, he was laughing at me kind of. And then he goes, you know, Ryan, I think that, um, something along the lines of feelings of abandonment uh, from your mother are going to impact and form how you have relationships with women. And it was pretty apparent um, because for a long time, it was, that was how I measured my value, right? It was yeah. like what the quality and quantity of women that I could have attracted to me, right? Yeah. Um, even like a very young age in like high school, that was like, you know, and, and that really uh, is, I think, pivotal to addiction, right? Um, yeah. Uh, drug use is symptomatic of a greater illness. Drug use is not the illness. You know, it's it's a symptom. Mm. Um, the illness is inside, and for me, it was insecurity. Um, I'm not good enough. I need everyone to think that I'm filling the blank. And for me, it was uh, women and extreme. Right? I needed everyone to think I was fucking crazy, and whether it was true or not was uh, less important than like the belief that it was true. Right? And I needed to be perceived as like the wild guy and, um, you know, just trying to be cool and trying to be tough and, um, just all kinds of toxic, insecure madness. There really was the genesis of, uh, you know, my drug use, um, it had to do with just not liking me, you know, yeah. and my, my dad saw this as I was growing up my whole life. And so like, when you got there at mm -hmm. age 12, 
How did you settle in? Did you, did you go right to public school? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. How'd that go? Uh, pretty good. I went straight to gifted. Um, and it was, you know, public school was, it was public what, school. Explain gifted. Uh, so they test you, um, even you're a kid and you show signs of like, uh, aptitude, mental aptitude. Um, and if you score, uh, you know, higher, um, than the mean, um, above average, they put you in a gifted program with other gifted kids. Um, just supposed to be more creative, um, for like a higher intelligence quotient yeah. and, and that kind of thing. Um, which was like, uh, definitely better, right? Like de- definitely better than not uh, right. being a gifted for me. Um, my get the teacher in the keys, uh, in grade school was not a huge fan and she, and I, I was tough on her. Uh, I don't blame her at all. Um, but yeah, so it was, uh, God, what was the name of that school? Plantation Key School, uh, in, in the islands and, uh, you know, down, down in the keys. Yeah. And, uh, it was like seventh grade when I moved in. Yeah. Cause eighth grade starts high school. So <clears throat> next yeah. year I went to high school. Yeah. So yeah. Um, that, and then, so like I lived, <laughs> I had a really interesting uh, experience starting there. So my dad um, does very well. Uh, yep. he's, he's been an airline pilot for over 30 years. Um, he's been very savvy and disciplined uh, with the financial choices that he's made. And so, um, you know, again, it, it's a constant theme of me just not understanding, right? Like not just accepting things because I'm a kid. Um, I didn't realize that everyone thought I was the rich kid. You know, I, I, I didn't realize the the home that I lived in was that opulent yeah you know I, I didn't realize that that everyone didn't live on two acres on the ocean you know right. that everyone didn't have the four-story house with an elevator um you know i would right i would go to my i would go to my friends as trailers and hang out and play video games you know because that was where i wanted to be i wanted to be with my buddy you know, come over to my house and go swimming you know and, but I never, I didn't see those things. And I guess it's much easier for the rich kid not to see it, right? Yeah, but yeah. I didn't perceive things that way. It was never like, I wasn't trying to like flaunt my money or, or I, I didn't think of it like that. Yeah. And it never, it never occurred to me that people might only want me or hang out with me or be nice to me because I had things, Yeah, you know? Um, <clears throat> but I, I, you know, I did. And um, then there's this really interesting uh, dichotomy uh, or it would seem almost contradiction in terms uh, where my dad is a uh, uh, very strong, uh, firm believer in uh, hard work and, and creating for yourself, right? So I'm living in this this house, um, you know, the boat. He's an airline pilot and, and nice vehicles and stuff. Uh, and, and everyone assumes I'm the rich kid. They all have more money than me because <laughs> my dad doesn't give me money, yeah. right? Like I started working when I was 12 years old. I collected my first paycheck. I was working at a dive shop. I was hucking dive tanks off a dive boat three times a day, loading and unloading for $6 an hour. No right? way. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, dude. I've been working my whole life. Nine years old, earlier than nine, in that neighborhood in, in Washington, I would print out flyers, right? Lawn mowing, car yeah. washing, yep. name your own price, whatever. I'd walk around the neighborhood pushing a lawnmower carrying yep. a bucket of soap, right? Yep. Like. Yep. Yep. Whatever it took. Like I, I did was, the same thing. Yeah, yeah, dude. I was always on the right grind. Down, walking down the street with right. a lawnmower with the gas can on it. Yep. I remember this one prick had me wash his Porsche. And uh, I was like, oh, you name the price. This is my mom's gimmick. She was in marketing, right? She's like, you tell everyone you're, you you name your own price. And they're all going to be sweet to this little boy. You know, they're going to pay you well. Like, okay. So I go wash this guy's Porsche for three fucking dollars. 
And you, and you remember this. I do, dude. I do now. You know what I mean? Looking back. Let's I, see if we can get him this podcast you, somehow. Yeah, you son of a bitch. A freaking guy I with a pork. I scratch the shit out of it. <laughs> you know? I'm just, I'm just out there with dish soap and like a mitt. I don't At all the, the traumatic events of your childhood, you remember the Porsche for three bucks. Yeah. And now, you look back, you're like, God, you're an asshole. Because even at the time, it was like, that's the least anyone's ever paid me. But I didn't know what a Porsche was. It was just this car. What did right? you say to him when he gave me the three bucks? Nothing. You Thank know? you. Yeah. I'm exactly. not coming back. <laughs> and that was thanks. Hope you liked it. Yeah, like I'll see you soon. I probably wanted to come do it again. I was I, I've been on my hustle my whole life, dude. It's uh, the grind has never stopped. Oh so. yeah. All right, so go. Yeah. You, so like I, you know, other than like food and board, right, and like family events, yeah, stuff, yeah, right. Yeah. But like cell phone, like I bought my own. I wanted extra things. I bought them myself. Like uh, my nana, uh, you know, uh, God rest her soul. She she gave me uh, her car. It was my first car for free, but. You know, from there, it, it didn't work very long. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I bought all my own. Now, um, did you contact your mom at all, or did you attempt to contact her? And did she contact you once you got to the Keys? Mm-hmm. So she would still call and stuff, um, you know, and we would go and see her during the summer, and we would visit every once in a while, but it wasn't um, it wasn't like it was with my dad. You know, she didn't, she didn't come to see us like he did. And when she did come to see us, it was all fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was really weird, dude. She, like... She flew out one time unannounced, eighth grade homecoming. Uh, I went to this dance, the homecoming dance um, for my school. And uh, like halfway through the dance, I see this like shadow like over behind like a tree. I'm like, what the fuck is that? And I kind of go walk over and it's my mom. She flew in to Florida, didn't tell me, came to my homecoming dance and was spying on me. <laughs> what? Right? Yeah, like from the trees. She came with this weird guy she married. Um, his name was Ken. And uh, he had made money selling some kind of uh, law student software or something like that. And uh, confided in me later uh, that he always wanted to be a ballerina uh, and pirouetted across the room at one point. This guy was fucking strange. <laughs> um, right, yeah, yeah, that was weird, dude. And uh, so... He, he told you this? Yeah. Uh-huh, yeah, he did. That's like, odd. In confidence, yeah, that was weird. In confidence? Like, leaned in, like, oh, I always wanted to be a ballerina. What? What? <laughs> um... <clears throat> Yeah, so like I'm coming home from the homecoming dance, and I'm like going down the street, getting ready to turn into my driveway. There's a minivan in front of me, and this minivan turns into my driveway in front of me. My friend's dropping me off in my friend's car, and I'm like, "What the fuck is this?" And I get out of the car. I'm like, "Hey, what are you doing in my driveway?" Window rolls down. It's my mom, <laughs> right? Yeah. And she like scoops me up to like hang out or whatever. But it was just like looking back on it, it's the weirdest, most toxic fucking like you know. Just why did you just tell me you were coming? <laughs> you know what I mean? You're like, I want to see the homecoming dance. Um, so yeah, we did see her. Um, it, it wasn't, uh, quite the same. Um, you know, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I do believe that my mom, uh, had good intentions most of the time. Um, you know, one of the things that she would do, uh, she would paint these scenarios. She's like amazing. Like, Oh, we're going to go on a cruise and we're going to do this and that. We're going to go on a snowboarding trip. I'm going to get you a new snowboard, you know, which like cool. You know, but yeah. like, as like a seven year old, you know, you're fucking jazzed. You're like, oh my God, I'm going to go snowboarding. I'm going to get a new snowboard. Sounds amazing. And then it would never happen. You know, and, and she would do this over and over and over and over. And, uh, you know, that was kind of like, so one day she just shows up for homecoming, but it was part of a narrative where like, you know, she was doing this and we're going to rent the house and we're going to go on a trip together and everyone's going to, and it's all in her head. And again, I think it, it starts with the best intentions, but, uh, you know, it's something that even when, like, she started interacting with my kids, 
like I'm extremely wary of. You know what I mean? Like I don't want you breaking my daughter's hearts, like promising them, uh, you know, equestrian trips. She started this crap with my oldest uh, horses and and this that and the other, and you just don't come through. You know? Yeah. And like I just. It's not like, oh, God, you didn't get your pony, you know, poor little kid or whatever. But at the same time, like, let's just save them the heartache. You know, like, why tell them? Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's not like they're they're living in, in abject hardship or anything. But um, you are, like, slowly breaking their hearts, you know, like, yeah. one instance at a time. Um, <clears throat> You've called her on it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. or I've tried to. She uh, She's pathologically unable to look at these things truthfully. So when you begin criticizing any of this kind of stuff, it turns into like, oh, woe is me, and oh, I'm terrible, I'm such a, oh, I'm sorry, I'm such an awful mom, and like, blah, blah, blah. Or she just gets straight pissed and doesn't respond. I, I had to get to a point with my mom, and, and recovery really helped me with this, where I had to just understand and accept that nothing is going to change with her. She is who she is. All I can control is my side of the street. So I have a relationship with her on my terms, and I, as much as I, like, obviously I have unresolved issues with my mom and, uh, we have a difficult relationship or whatever. She's my mother and I love her and I would do anything for her, you know? Yep. Um, cause that's what family is. Uh, <clears throat> not a dear friend of mine, you know, right. but is absolutely, uh, my beloved mother. Um, so, you know, uh, I, I just, I walk this line sometimes of not wanting to hurt her feelings. And I, honestly, I hope she doesn't see this cause <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna hurt but um you know none of it is, is intended to be malicious it's just where i've gotten and um she is emotionally exhausting uh when i was 18 years old she was diagnosed with colon cancer and a couple of years before that mm-hmm. by the time i was 16 i had gotten so tired of her bullshit and i had gotten so tired of the negativity and the emotional drain and the exhaustion and because it really is. It's mentally like going yeah. 12 rounds with Ollie. I mean, she she is brilliant, and she's a gifted manipulator. And, and so it's just the gymnastics. And so I finally just told her, like, hey, uh, you bring uh, more negativity than you do joy to my life, and I'm done interacting with you. And I didn't talk to her for two years. And then uh, she was diagnosed with colon cancer. And I got really resentful um, because it was like a way for her to force her way back into my life, you know? And... Uh, so I started having a relationship with her again, and that's been a remission for a long time. But, you know, she had a lot of complications associated with those treatments, and uh, she made it very clear uh, where my proclivity for addiction came from as a result of that. She uh, she started off with real pain, and, and she probably still lives with some amount of real pain, but yeah. she was on... Um, several clinical trials for like novel delivery symptoms of different types of fentanyl, like on top of, you know, Dilaudid and Valium and like all that other shit. And she, uh, she had a really bad time um, with opiates for a while. And I think she's mostly weaned off of that stuff, but yeah. every once in a while I'll talk to her and, you know, she'll start trailing off and getting weird and loopy in the middle of a sentence. And when you start having dream talk, you know, and that kind of stuff, I'm like, mm, back on morphine. And you um, said something <clears throat> where that, that was, led to yours a little bit oh no just like to see her go through that <clears throat> oh, you know what i mean okay. to see her even though unwilling to admit it because like she may have been led to that circumstance by a medically valid path but it is absolutely addicted to opiates you know right um it, you know seeing that it's like oh okay well it's not just me <laughs> you know and, and opiates weren't weren't my thing and i'm sure we'll get um, you know, into more of the details of that, but, um, you know, that that habit exists already. And like her brother, my uncle's hopeless alcoholic. Right. Yeah. And my dad's sister, my aunt, uh, my late aunt, um, also same thing, you know, um, bad Al- alcohol and drugs. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's there. Right. 
Um, <clears throat> and so 18, back into your life, mm -hmm. you were resentful. What happened from 18 to... Let's see. So it's an interesting time. So Because you're done with high school at this point, or you're finishing. Well, it's, no, so I finished high school early. Okay, I, uh, I figured. <laughs> well, not, not by the route that you might imagine. Um, <laughs> so uh, by the time I was a junior in high school, I was... Uh, deeply involved with the seedier side of the internet and um, <laughs> qu quick story. So before Napster existed, you remember Napster, yes, Napster I and LimeWire, right? Okay, so do. like the original file sharing programs. So the way that people pu pirated um, music, software, movies before Napster and LimeWire and all that and torrents and things like that existed uh, were these message boards on the internet, right? And um, there were public ones that sucked and then there were private ones that were really good. But if you wanted to be on a private board, you had to contribute in some capacity. So you had to be a part of a team and call them an FXP team. And these teams, um, they had uh, multiple components, but the, uh, the the general makeup is that you have scanners and hackers, right? And your scanners are people who are taking a bunch of internet protocol addresses, IP addresses, the number that's assigned to a device on the internet to show its location, how other devices talk to one another. Um, I would take a range of addresses and scan them. And what you're looking for is a company running a server, an FTP server, a file server, that allows anonymous login. And so you set like a big IP range and you let the scanner run and hopefully you come back and find a, you know, sheet full of results um, of open FTP servers. And you give those to your hackers or like whoever else is on your team. And they clear out all the corporate information that the business put on there and then they reconfigure the server so that it has security so the company can't get back into it. And then they post the address on the message board and then people who, uh, we called them distros, some people who worked for like movie studios, music companies, stuff like that, who had access to pirated media would then upload all of that to those servers. And then the address was posted on these boards for everyone to share and download the files from. So I was a part of this FXP team and this is the straw that broke the camel's back, right? <clears throat> like, uh, I had already got in a bunch of trouble at high school. Are like, you understanding any of this, Fletcher? Yeah. Like I wrote, um... I wrote a little program to emulate the logon screen for Windows NT uh, so I could harvest credentials from the administrators at my school. Like I could get the teachers' usernames and passwords and the system administrators' usernames and passwords. It looked like the logon screen, but when they put their shit in, it sent an email to me with their, um, their stuff in it. And uh, so that was like one thing that I did that I got in trouble. Um, <clears throat> the, 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 got me, the thing that got me sent to the uh, military academy, <laughs> I took uh, 30 um, Linux bootable DVDs. So it was... Uh, DVD with an operating system that you can boot from the disk. So, like, you open the CD-ROM tray on a computer, put the CD in it, restart the computer, and Windows wouldn't start. It would start the operating system on this disk. And it was uh, an operating system that allowed me to remotely uh, control um, computers from the command line via a thing called SSH from home. And so I took over uh, an entire computer lab at the school, 30 computers on the 30 disks. And... Uh, the school had like a T3 connection, which at the time was like a big internet pipe. It's like very fast, so yeah, you could do yeah. a lot of scanning. And uh, <clears throat> so I started this absurd um, FTP scan, which like millions of IPs, like some 10,000 threads a second, just like a pretty ridiculous um, scan for the hardware and architecture that day. And at that time, um, every school in the Keys, in the Florida Keys, from Key Largo to Key West, um, the networks were all daisy chained together. And so I caused an incident that crashed every school network in the Florida Keys, <laughs> starting in Key Largo all the way down to Key West. Um, and they couldn't prove it was me. They knew it was me, but they couldn't prove it. And then I had also, just to be a pain in the ass, I had set um, 
BIOS passwords on all of these computers in this computer lab, which is like when you first push the computer and all the black and white tests and beep, and it posts, they would come up and ask for a password at that point before the operating system ever loaded. Yeah. And the only way to fix that, if you don't know the password, is to open the computer, like take the whole case apart, and there's a little battery, like a little watch battery. It's called CMOS battery on your motherboard, and there's a jumper next to it. And you have to set the jumper and then redo it to reset the CMOS password or to flush the battery. So, like, in order to get use of this entire computer lab back, they had to have some poor asshole in there take apart all 30 computers. <laughs> so, anyways, uh, they called me in, and they are like, I remember the end of the school days, all parties reporting to the Lindley Conference. Please report to conference room B. The <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Couldn't hear it. Yeah. Uh, so... I thought it was just going to be my dad meeting with the principal, and I go to this room. It's the network administrator. It's my drafting teachers, the school superintendents, the principals, the assistant principal. There's like 15 people in this room. And uh, I've been talking to my dad about this stuff for like a while, right? And my dad, God bless him, like even though I'm very much in trouble with my father, he's still like, I, there's a portion of him that's proud. You know what I mean? <laughs> and like, and uh, you know, he, he makes the suggestion in this room. He looks at the system administrator for the school, and he goes, well, why don't you just give him assistant administrator access and let him help you fix some of these holes? I mean, this guy just could have had puppies. Uh, he was so fucking mad. <laughs> yeah, like steam shoot out of his ears. And the the, the ironic thing about it, um, that their solution was uh, to give me a, a, a local user account on the computer that I used in my drafting lab to do my drafting work, which I just they clearly illustrated how inept these people were because putting me on a local user account instead of having me log in through their domain network allowed me to circumvent every control they had like i, I was no longer subject to their net filters like it was, it was i was like oh wow really i was like cool yeah that's a good idea give me the local user account uh, <laughs> that's, that's what you should definitely do um so anyways i got disenrolled and i got sent to so hold on <laughs> so, so after they did that, so you're in this big room and your dad like suggested to, so they gave you the local, local yeah. user thing. Yeah. And what'd you do from there? They're like, yeah, we're not doing that. And uh, they, they gave me this local user account and it didn't last very long because they were already in the process of like the guidance counselor is telling my dad about this military academy program. It's this, uh, I, I, which I did go to. I went to the military academy. Everyone's like, oh, did you go to West Point? I'm like, oh, no, dude. Not like the prestigious ones. Like uh, the ones that your parents threatened to send you to in high school because yeah. you were misbehaving. Yeah. The state-funded at-risk youth military academy. That's where I went. Right. You know, I went to the fucking not-fun place. And, uh, and so the, you did go there? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So wait, what grade was this that you did Junior this? year. Junior uh, year. I was disenrolled. So I graduated a year early. They disenrolled you. Yeah. yeah. They said to your dad, hey, we, we can't keep this guy. Right. And so, it, it, and I found out later that at the time, uh, I was causing significant friction in my father's marriage to my stepmom, oh, really? uh, who is no longer married to. And she was like a key player in having me sent to the military academy. Really? She was like, yeah. Yeah. She was over me. <laughs> she she was, wanted huh? me and she wanted me gone. Yeah. Um, and, you know, my, my dad and I had a very like emotional uh, coming to terms later where. Um, you know, he told me about how all that unfolded and, and we shed tears and shared a beer and he apologized and we kind of, you know, figured things out. Um, and I don't regret it, you know, like I, yeah. it was like, I ultimately like, should I have gone there? Probably not. But, um, that I did go there ended up being a very good thing. You know, I graduated valedictorian and, uh, you know, I learned, uh, how to do something, uh, really fucking hard that I didn't want to do, um, and do it anyways. And this is the military academy. 
Yeah. So, so, so you have to go to like a boot camp? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's several instances in my life of me being like institutionalized um, in one yeah. place or another, um, whether it be like rehabs, military academy, like send the, get him the fuck out of here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And like go receive treatment from someone. And uh, I had like a very, uh, a really common uh, routine, right? Like I would get in a bunch of trouble, uh, I would get institutionalized, and then I would get kicked out for fighting. <laughs> I was, uh, you know, I, I had a chip on my shoulder, and I didn't take shit from anyone. And it was like, and I didn't care who you were or what the deal was. I was ready to fight, you know? And uh, military academy was no different. Um, I went there. So the uh, day you walked into military academy, obviously you had a chip. Oh, God. Well, it's hard to have much of a chip at that point because yeah. it was pretty fucking intense. It was like they give you... Um, yeah. How big were you at this point? Like, what's your size? Because right now you're what, 6'2", 6'3"? I'm 6'1", um, 280, yeah. uh, 285. At this time, so so I was a really, I actually was a very small guy when I first went to high school. I was like 5'3", my freshman year. Yeah. Um, and I think by my junior year, I was like 5'10", or so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I don't think I was 200 pounds. You know, I wasn't like, okay. um, I was, I was, I was overweight, you know, I wasn't like fit, but I also wasn't like fat, you know, right. like it was, Got I it. was just a chubby kid. Got it. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, so you have, like, a mesh bag with, like, 70 pounds of all the shit that you're going to have for the next six months, and they put you on this bus and like, Camp Landing, Stark, Florida, uh, drive onto this uh, this military base, and there's, like, all these cadre lined up on the street, thunder and lightning, and, you know, you get off the, the bus, and you're holding your 80-pound bag, and, like, one guy comes and screams, and you hear, pick that bag up above your head, get it above your head now, get it, and you like, the bag above your head, the next guy, like, comes to you and, like, whispers, and you're like, oh, it's okay, man, let's let the bag down, it's all good. And the next guy comes up, what are you doing with the bag? You know what I mean? It's like that whole thing with like yeah. for a good like 15, 20 up, down, push, this, that, and the other. And they cut off all your hair and um, they put you in this barracks. And <laughs> I can remember the first week, it was like the third day in a row that they come in at like 4 a.m., like trash can lids and air horns, yeah. right? Yeah. And just like dumping you out of your racks, getting everyone outside beaten face in the mud, and it's, like, North Florida, like, the fog, and it's dark, and you can hear, like, like live rounds, like, you know, uh, training exercises on base and shit like that. And I remember, like, looking around at these people and thinking to myself like, very clearly, right, like, this is bullshit. Uh, no one's ever done this for six months. Uh, it's not possible. Tomorrow, everyone's going to get an NDA and a kick out the door. And, like, you know, we're not going to be allowed to talk about it, but this doesn't, like, actually happen. (laughs) 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 An NDA. Yeah, right? And I thought this way at this point, too, (laughs) like 17. Um so the first couple of weeks are like much harder, right? They 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 shock you for the first couple like this weeks. This is this is a one night deal. We're not gonna right, dude. Is, right, like this is the big fucking lie. Like no one does this, <laughs> uh, and uh, they do though. And so the they first do. the first two weeks are in these old shitty barracks, and it's pretty tough. And then it gets a little bit better, and um, you know, but I fight, and uh, so I was fighting, and I got in several fights. What were the fights about? Just people. Yeah, someone saying something I didn't like, or someone calling me out, or like, uh, you know, me saying something someone else didn't like. I, just stupid shit, JD. Yeah. It wasn't, there was no fight that was justified. It was, I had a bad attitude. Yeah. And uh, I wasn't going to let anyone punk me. And, uh, you know, I remember the last fight, I said something slick to this kid. And I was sitting on a rack, and he, like, speared me. He, like, ran and like, tackled me, like, through this rack. Like into the wall. And the rack is a bunk, by yeah, the way. Bunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we fight, and uh, he probably won that one, actually. He got the drop on me. Um, but I hurt him pretty good, and, and I ended up, uh, you know, 
kind of getting the blame for it. And uh, I remember sitting in this room, and it's, you know, First Sergeant Gray. He's like, well, cadet. He's like, you got a choice to make. Oh, well, what's that, sir? <laughs> sir, what choice, sir? You want to take a plane or a bus home, right? I'm like, uh, permission to speak. Right? Like, this cadet doesn't wish to go home, right? And I was like, uh, there's like a month left of graduation at this point. And uh, how many fights had you had at this point? Three or four. Three, okay. Yeah, maybe half a dozen. Yeah. I don't know. Like, it, it repeat. You know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I looked at him and, and I, I said something to the effect that I didn't want to take either. And he goes, All right, well, I'll give you a third choice. He goes, What if you stay and you graduate, but we don't let you be valedictorian and you can't walk the stage with your class? And I was like, Yeah, obviously I've gone way too far to go home now. Like, I'll do that. And, uh, so I stayed, and they let me walk the stage. But they, so at this point, you were valedictorian. Yeah, they took valedictorian from me. Yeah. So and and the academics of this place were a joke. It was uh, they had us take the GED tests, and then whoever got the best score on the test was valedictorian. <laughs> and uh, this we were the last class that got an actual high school diploma. Uh, so after my class, everyone got uh, GEDs. Um, but so like, and, and it wasn't like, it, it wasn't close, you know what I mean? So like, I'm very intelligent, but I'm not super great at the school routine, but I am insane, uh, with testing. I, I test extremely well. Yeah. Um, very, very good at testing. Yeah. And, uh, so it wasn't close. It was like the class, the second place guy and me, you know, I was ahead by like hundreds and hundreds of points. And, uh, I was not the story they wanted. You know, a kid from, like, a uh, fairly well-to-do, um, like, uh, non-minority family. And uh, so it was a lot better for the news cameras and stuff that Cadet Montanez, um, you know, from uh, an impoverished area, um, you, know, you know, minority community, yeah. uh, was the public face of valedictorian. So technically they did take valedictorian from me, but I still claim it because you can't take yeah. my scores from me. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's not like it's codified anywhere in the yeah. plaque on the wall. Right. Eyes valedictorian. Yeah. I'm glad that kid got on camera though. His message is probably more powerful than mine at that For point. For sure. Um, you know, so I stayed and I graduated and uh, 17. Did, did, uh, did your dad, how long was this, this by the way? Six months. Six months. Did your dad visit? Did you have yeah. family visit? Yeah. Yeah. So he, he did had a family day. Visit? Yeah, she did. Oh, really? Yeah. We, we had a good relationship. So I looked her up a couple of years ago. Uh, no one else in my family talks to her, um, but she spent a lot of years with us and she gave up having her own kids to raise me and my sister. And while she may not have been like the greatest person or whatever, um, she made sacrifices and she loved us and I loved her. And so no, it's not like anything magical has come out of that relationship, but I've checked in on her. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, she did come. We had a family day weekend, and then we had a two-day pass and a three-day pass, and that was it. Then we get, like, one five-minute phone call a week. Free yeah. time was polishing boots and writing letters. Yep. We got uh, two weekend passes in six months, and then we had the one family day. And that was uh, – so I graduated at 17, came home in 2004, and uh, – Pretty, pretty shortly got sideways with my stepmom and, and uh, me and my dad had a conversation that was like, yeah, you can't be here anymore. Like, you got to move out. So I moved out when I was 17 and uh, some family in Texas uh, moved houses, had a little house on a little piece of property. So you went from the Keys to Texas. Yeah. Um, this shit whole little house in a meth cooking town on the border of Oklahoma. Um, it's like a studio house. They moved on this property and... Uh, you know, my uncle and my dad co-owned it, so they rented it to me for $400 a month. And that sounds reasonable, right? right. But this was North Texas in uh, 
that's like 18 years ago, so 2004, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> and uh, there were no jobs. I got a job. Uh, I, I couldn't get a job. I got a job uh, at McDonald's um, for a week, making five fifteen an hour. And uh, oh God, yeah, they like this, the manager like very condescendingly told me to change the fry oil at one point, and I was like, nope, not fucking doing that. I quit. <laughs> Because I was like, this job is not paying my bills anyway. So you know what I mean? He's already like, he, like I'm not, no, I'm not going to have some guy like try to flex on me by making me do shit work in like some McDonald's, you know, so like, I'll figure something else out. <laughs> I left and I got uh, a job through a temp agency at a PVC pipe manufacturing plant and uh, 12 hour shifts all night, making like $9 an hour. And I had to drive three hours to the store that had a special kind of steel toed boot that their insurance required. And, uh, I had to come out of pocket for that. So it was like $400 to get this pair of boots, right? And uh, I didn't even make enough money from this place to, to pay for the boots before I got laid off. So Hurricane Katrina happened, right? Yeah. So like we work a 12-hour shift, and this guy in a suit pull, pulls the whole crew into this room. He starts giving a little presentation on a board. PVC pipe derived from polyethylene resins, a byproduct of crude oil, natural gas, like blah, blah, blah. Hurricane Katrina happened. 80% of the oil platforms in the Gulf were damaged. Price of, poly price of polyethylene resin shot through the roof. We're laying off all temporary help, shutting down seven out of 12 lines. <clears throat> and I was like, great, I've worked here for three days. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I haven't even uh, managed to pay off these boots yet. And uh, <laughs> yeah, dude, so it was a... It was a tough spot, and I uh, I was looking for a sales job. I was like, well, I get a sales job, you know, because I'm pretty good at talking, and, I, and I've had some success there, and I started looking for car sales, and I found this thing, USA Card Services. This is crazy. <laughs> get into this. I want to touch on it for too long, but... Oh, God. Um, it, very, very psychological. <clears throat> so, like, you had to take a test to apply for this job, and uh, I didn't even have a fucking cell phone at this time, right? So, like... This girl that I had been in fifth grade gifted with randomly reconnects with me like 12 years later, moves to Texas, and we're dating, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, how did she connect with you? I think it was, it was on social media somehow. Yeah. We like found each other. I, I can't remember what the story was. So we were dating long distance from Washington. She moved out to go to this school. She said had a really good opera program, UNT. She was a singer. I think she moved out to be near me, though. I was so fucking toxic, JD. I was just starting to get like really into drugs, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> now at this point when you were, when you were getting the, the job there, were you already starting on drugs? Not yet. I was about to though. So okay. like, uh, I found this job and you had to take this test and it was like, they would give you a scenario and four correct answers. And then you had 10 points and you would a lot like, if you think this is the thing you would most likely, I would give eight points to this suggestion, two points to this one, one to this one, none to that. Cause I wouldn't do that. All right. Yeah. They make like a composite score. They're looking for a certain type of personality. And if you have a high enough red score, then you can apply for this job. So uh, Sarah, this girl that I was dating, she, she hits me up. She's like, I got this weird phone call from some New York sounding guy talking about like this job, like blah, blah, blah. And, uh, it was for this job. And, uh, I had put her number down because I didn't have a phone. Right. Yeah. Um, I was so broke. And, uh, I go in for this first interview and it's this like high rise building in downtown Dallas. And there's all these guys in suits and they're screaming. They have these headsets to throw paperwork across the rooms with red light in the front. It's like going and it's a straight up boiler room. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> and I don't know shit. Like I don't, I don't know anything about life. I don't know what's going on here, but I know I want to be a part of it. Right. looks like everyone's making money. looks really cool. I want in. And, uh, it's actually, it was one of the, the biggest things my mom ever did for me professionally. I called her, 
uh, after I had this first intro interview and explained the situation to her in corporate America, sales marketing, that's like very much her, like she's at home here. Um, all these fucking phonies. And uh, so she goes, okay, Ryan, she goes, send me your resume. I'm going to rewrite it for you. I'm going to send you an email. These are your strengths, uh, as they will see them. These are your weaknesses as they're going to see them, your age, like blah, blah, blah. Here's how to overcome those things in an interview. She goes, I called the manager at the Nordstrom's at the mall up from your house. I got him to agree to accept a credit card over the phone. You're going to this Nordstrom's. You're going to pick up a suit and a briefcase. Yeah. My mom fucking came through wow. super tough, super tough. And I got this job and, uh, that experience, so, and I made a bunch of money, um, and, we'll, and we'll get into that, but like that experience of like walking into that building, being so out of my depth, seeing all of this amazing shit happening, not really believing that I can be a part of it, and then having my mom open that door for me and, and getting in there, right, was one of the first times that I realized that like 99 point whatever percent of barriers in people's lives to achieving like things are self-erected right yeah. like the only thing holding you back from going and getting that job is the belief that you can right <clears throat> yeah. and uh and she helped show me that it's one of the most fundamental critical important lessons in my life so i got this job and uh, i did very well uh it's full commission sales and we were just screwing people and I didn't figure it out until later, right? We were like selling the notion of like a home-based business and we're gonna set you up with drop shivers, you're gonna have a website, like blah, blah, blah. Uh, in truth, uh, we were tying people to physical credit card equipment leases that they didn't need to run a web-based business for like $200 a month for four wow. years that were only cancelable by like death, <laughs> bankruptcy, yeah. Um, and then my company would get a portion of that lease contract up front for every deal that we close and then that was my commitment, right? Um, so, uh, was doing really well there, um, back on my insecurity thing. Right. And I'm like, coolest thing I thought that I thought the coolest thing that you could possibly do as like a young guy with money was cocaine and strippers, right? Like that was it. I'm yeah. going to do blow and I'm going to hook up with a bunch of strippers and be the strip club and like, blah, blah, blah. Were the guys around you doing this? Yeah. Some of them were. <clears throat> Um, that's where you got the idea or? not really no you know I just like TV and whatever bullshit yeah. notion of like you know how I should be in Scarface yeah right like I, I honestly don't know where it really came yeah. from um, so I started doing that and then uh, I found Ecstasy which is like my first love oh my lord yeah I feel oh you on God. that oh fuck Ecstasy is amazing if that could be done healthily like <laughs> I've, I've talked about this before bro MDMA is amazing yeah <clears throat> Um, but I, I took that to such an unhealthy level at that point, right? And uh, so, what did you start with? You were already smoking weed. So I started smoking weed at twelve. Twelve. Right? Yeah. Uh, by accident, I thought this kid asked me if I wanted to buy some smoke, and at the time I had been smoking cigarettes, and I thought he meant cigarettes. I'm yeah. like, well, what kind? He said regs. I thought he said reds. I was yeah. like, yeah, I'll take a pack of Marlboro Reds. He's like, all right, we'll come over to my house, ten bucks. I'm like, okay. And I came over to his house and ten bucks. He hands me a little dime bag, like green shit. I'm like, the fuck is this? <laughs> you know, it's weed, man. It's regs. And I'm like, oh, oh, oh yeah, totally. I need, you know, like, and I start like trying to play it off, like, I need, so he's like, do you need a pipe? Like he can tell, right? So he sells me a pipe, and uh, I go home with this weed in this little pipe, and uh, I'm sitting on the porch like a wraparound deck in my house i'm sitting on the side of the house trying to smoke this pipe with matches and the wind coming off of the ocean it's just not working <laughs> you know and uh i didn't know what the fuck to do i didn't know how to do it so these, these kids invited me over a couple days later and we got super stoned out in the woods next to their house and i sprinted home all the way home barefoot because they like 
pretended to be startled when someone knocked on the door and I thought it was the cops. I like ran out the back door, jumped over their back railing, like sprinted around the side of the yard, dead sprint, half mile home barefoot. <laughs> and like later the next day, they're like, where the fuck did you go? <laughs> yeah. You said someone was there. They're like, oh, we were fucking with you, man. You know, we can just like go make some noodles. Uh, um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, let's see, where did I, uh, yeah. You so, went back to 12 when you started smoking weed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I started smoking weed and So drinking. just weed through 17. Yeah, just weed a little bit of and alcohol. drinking a lot. Yeah. Drinking a lot. Yeah. What was I, your drink of choice back then? Uh, beer, vodka. Okay. You know, like whatever. So it wasn't until. Whatever I could steal from my dad's liquor cabinet. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Um, so that was all, and, and all that was like fairly benign, like, and I didn't smoke a ton of weed back then either. It was just really like more of the like drinking and I hadn't really seen a lot of drugs, you know. Um, I don't really know what the turning point was. So now you got the job, you're making some money mm-hmm. and you think it's going to be cool. Yeah. And so then you just, you got, hey, you get blow. Like where did, where, what happened? How did you get into blow? Uh... Yeah, like, Did you know, know guys we, around you that were doing it? They were going to the strip club. You said, hey, I'm in. Yeah, I mean, it was probably something like that. So there's been a lot of drug use between then and now. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's hard to remember exactly how it happened. I hung out with this kid uh, who had a pacemaker at 18. Yeah, defibrillator wow. and a pacemaker. Yeah. Uh, who did drugs. And, uh, you know, we got high a little bit together. I got this roommate, Melissa, and she really, I guess, kind of opened the doors for me. Um, she was from California. And, you know, and, and we ended up getting a, a condo together in Dallas. Um, we ended up like very close friends, like really quickly. And I wasn't hooking up with her or anything. It was a really weird relationship. But, um, you know, uh, we smoked a lot of weed together. And then um, some of the people that like she made friends with had like other things. I did some acid with her. And then like I found uh, this guy I was buying weed from. It was like, oh, I got these blue dolphins, you know. And that was like then the ecstasy, That's ecstasy, ecstasy thing started. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, it really was just like a bunch of things. I had a, a guy for a while. I can't even remember who I was getting it from, but I would get this red tar opium, these, these balls of opium, and I would take it to the strip club, and I would have uh, these Marlboro Ultralight cigarettes that I would roll a little ball of opium up and stick it on the tip of the cigarette and rip the filter off and like sit there and like take a big rip of opium like right before getting a lap dance. It, there was this club in Dallas called uh, the Clubhouse. Pantera owns it, and uh, yeah. or they did. And uh, I was 18 and up, full nude BYOB. It's like the fucking Wild West. There's like, no rules in this place, right? Like, and they encouraged the girls to do, like, whatever. It was, like, it was wild. Wow. And uh, so I spent a lot of time there. I did a lot of drugs there. And um, <clears throat> I smoked opium there. Um, hooked up uh, with a few of those strippers and brought them home who also, uh, you know, had connections with drugs. And... Um, and this is about what, 20, 21, 22? No, this is uh, 18. Jeez. It's like 18, 19. Uh, 19, I ended up in, the re- in rehab for the first time. So oh, my I, God. I took things from zero to 100 real quick, uh, like I do. You know, um, I had a friend one time describe it in a way that really uh, jibes for me. And he said, you know, when you're um, in your car. I'll let you know when we're at about 9.55. Cool. Yeah. Okay. He's like, you know, when you're in your car and that song comes on on the radio and it's your song and yeah. you don't even think about it. You just reach out and spin the dial up past 10. That's how it was for me with drugs. Like I'd never even thought about it. And as soon as I got high, I just had to go past 10. You know what I mean? Like it had to be, you needed know, all of it. Yeah. And, uh, very quickly ran out of money and drugs and, uh, decided to orchestrate this robbery. Uh, so oh this, this guy I had bought weed from one time, um, was just like, 
very just like shit with OPSEC, right? Like operational security. I so I, I've always been very in tune um, to like how people handle themselves and like what's going on and what's going on in my environment. Like details have always been a thing for me. I go over to hook up and buy some weed, like an eighth, like a small amount of weed from this guy. And he pulls this fucking Tupperware out and like opens the lid, this weed like sponges out of it, excuse me. Yeah. I mean, there's probably like a pound and a half of weed in here. Yeah. And I'm just like, this is a little guy. You know, he's not, he's a very small man and he's in an apartment alone. And I'm like, why the fuck would you pull that much weed out in front of anyone? Yeah. You know, but like I remembered it. Yeah. And uh, when things got really bad, yeah, me and Melissa were very broke and I needed drugs. I was like, hey, remember that guy? You know, I was like, why don't, I was like, hey, I'm going to do a star 82 or whatever it is. Block your number and call this guy and tell him that uh, you were given his number by a girl at the club and describe yourself, right? Like you gave a number to a stranger and now you're this stranger calling him. Tell him that you need to get like a half pound or like a lot of weed. Like we'll figure out, like you can just have a conversation. Like this girl gave me your number, like blah, blah, blah. I'm going to find out what he has on hand, you know? <clears throat> and, uh, I remember, like, I'm so OCD and, like, detail-oriented that I started planning this whole thing out. I had, like, stole some extra license plates, like, a week in advance that I had put over the top of my license plates in my car. Like, I mapped out the whole route. Like, I knew where I would stop to change clothes. Like, I had a plan for, like, the moment I get to his door to the moment we leave, this is the amount of time I'm willing to spend here. We have to call and confirm that he's not home. We're going to set up, like, blah, blah, blah. We're going to meet him, like, somewhere else. The whole thing. Then I had, like, a duffel bag and a crowbar and some gloves and shit and we went and uh i remember i got a gram of coke before we went so i could get like really you know keyed up um before going to rob this guy and uh i'm knocking on the door and like you know i was gonna break the window next to it so i could like reach through it and, like there's no one there and got some trouble with this door man i just fucking kick it boom <laughs> kick the door straight in right <laughs> it worked i mean it just flew open yeah like, great you're running to his bedroom and just start tossing everything, right? I don't look, pull the drawer out, dump it, you know, be fast. And I found this Tupperware full of weed. He wasn't there, right? No. I found this Tupperware full of weed, found like $1,200 or something like that in cash in like a sock drawer, and took off. And uh, sold like half the weed, took the cash, got a bunch of blown opium, had like a wild fucking week or whatever. Um, ended up having a really bad asthma attack and ended up in the hospital. And uh, got out of the hospital and I'm in the parking garage uh, outside of my condo and I called my dad this is and, when you got out of the hospital yeah and my dad he was like I can't remember what he said but he said something like you know what's going on Ryan you know like he knew right and I just lost it I broke down I told him everything <clears throat> and uh, uh, he told my mom uh, who uh you know, started looking at, at facilities and stuff, and uh, they had me head out to my grandparents' house um, so I could drop off my car, and my grandparents could take me to the airport um, and get me on a plane uh, to Michigan, where a facility was that my mom had found um, that she decided was the right facility for me to go to, and we'll have to unpack this because it's kind of crazy too, but... Um, <clears throat> I want to be able to, to have that. Yeah. I want to be able to tell that one with continuity. So I won't get too right. much into that okay. treatment center yet. Got it. Got it. Um, but <clears throat> yeah, so well, I fuck it. We'll just start getting into it. So 
um, this uh, program, and there's no way for her to know this, right? Because it wasn't like uh, Scientology was not super well known at the time, mm-hmm. and like uh, the whole uh, dogma and, and all of the um, you know weirdness surrounding it. Um, the program she sent me to was a Narconon program, which is uh, developed and written based on the curriculum uh, from L. Ron Hubbard, uh, who is the father of Scientology. Right? Mm. And uh, yeah, dude, it's all it's all fucked up. And I had no idea that this is like, <coughs> um, you know, and, and you didn't like figure it out until later, right? Because if you start figuring this shit out and you bring it up there, they punish you. You are not allowed to mention Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard, any of that, associate. You know, if you plant that seed, then everyone starts talking about it. The whole fucking thing falls apart, right? Yeah. So they won't let you like, it was very expensive and it was very well marketed and it was quite fucking insane um, the way that they did this uh, treatment. So they... They started. They start the process with what they call detox, right? And for them, detox is uh, they they take you to a dry sauna, and they give you a dose of niacin, and uh, they start you off on like 50 milligrams or 100 milligrams or whatever. You know, and your face blows up like a tomato, and they make you sit. You've had niacin. You pre-workout yeah, when your yeah, face gets yeah. all scratchy and yeah, shit. Yeah, niacin. Get the niacin flush. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then you sit in a, a hot sauna for eight hours. They make you sit in the sauna like all fucking day, like in and out, like five, eight hours. And then the next day you come back and they give you niacin. And if you react, then they send you into the sauna. And if you don't react, they give you a bigger dose. And uh, yeah, yeah. And it's like this is flushing all the toxins and impurities and literally like out of your system. Um, and like there's probably like some percentage in that, you know, because like I had enough residual like MDMA and shit in my system that I'm sitting in the sauna just like re-rolling like super hard, you know. And uh, <laughs> um, and now um, are some people throwing up and oh, it's, it gets bad. So it's all subjective, right? They they tell you that you I can't remember really, like some 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 synonym of transcend, right? It was like to leave the detox, you have to like transcend to the next portion, and that's when you like quit reacting but it's all subjective they decide when you quit reacting because if you just keep giving me more nice and i'm going to react again right so by the time it was done it was 28 days in this fucking sauna and they were giving me 2,000 milligrams of niacin are you like, kidding me no that was the final dose um and they're like oh yeah okay now all the residuals gone you can move on <laughs> right so then the next part of the uh program um, has a lot to do with training routines trs now this is all like scientology canon right like this is like these are the exercises that they do um and so like i can't remember whether there's like tr one two like three like they're all numbered but you know they boil down to like one of them is you sit there like this like with your hands on your thighs and you like look straight forward and everyone around you just hurls insults and terrible shit at you until you uh, don't react they call it flattening the button Right, and and there's several uh, iterations of the same kind of exercise. Right, <clears throat> the concept being like uh, making you non-reactive to negative stimulus. Right, so like you won't get high when you feel bad if you can like let a bunch of people insult you in a chair in a room or something. Like yeah. it, I guess is the is the logic there. Um, <clears throat> so I'm in this place six months ish, and I get high in the van driving to the hotel after my graduation ceremony. The graduation um, ceremony, ceremony? From rehab. From rehab. <laughs> yeah, they put us on this van, and the fucking driver at some point pulls out these clear joints. And he's like, what? They invented clear rolling paper while you guys were in treatment. And I was like, no fucking way. I was like, can I get one of those? And he's <sighs> like, sure. The driver? Yeah. 
So he hands Does me. Does he work for the company? <laughs> Probably. I don't fucking remember, man. So we pull over to this gas station to put fuel in this van, and I get out and light the joint. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's like was the other people in the tra- treatment program they're in the van yeah i mean they were all getting ready to go do heroin you know what Are i mean you just- yeah dude like this place was so wild listen no one was there to get clean they took no one was- <laughs> they took i was but like they took fucking while we were there these kids were so out of control they took the purell dispensers off the wall because the kids wouldn't stop drinking it they took big lighters away because they have a little uh like thing on the bottom yeah if you put a push pin in that hole in a yeah. big lighter and you smack it on the table and pull the pin out all the butane shoots out and they'd huff it right and they get high they took this away is at the treatment facility yes they took away shaving cream from us for the same reason they had that little plastic thing on the bottom of the can you can knock that out and huff the air the um the aerosol um yeah it was wild dude um like so i for part of the program i had to go get a handful of shaving cream when i wanted to shave um so i get out and i light this joint and the driver's like what the fuck are you doing <laughs> right like i gave you that joint like a you're not supposed to smoke it like while i'm with you and b we're at a fucking gas station and i was like oh i thought you gave me the, I gave me the joint i thought i was gonna smoke the joint right so like, i got high uh on the way out uh, from that one, and did, did your other peeps? You got fifty-two. Yeah, we're good for a few minutes. Yeah, got a few. So, did the other peeps on the van see you take the day take the joint too, or no? They they were just more worried about going and getting heroin. There's a couple of them. Um, I think like one of them took a joint or whatever, and, and I wasn't like super involved with them. They they just had their own thing, and uh, I don't really know like what they all went and did. But everyone was like, I don't think there was anyone on that van that was like, yeah, I'm not getting high. You know, <laughs> <laughs> everyone was into it. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't people really looking for, like, a solution, right? <clears throat> they were just there because they had to go? Yeah, yeah. So someone, like, whoever made them go or, like, whatever, um, you know, uh, the legal sentence or stipulation. There's a kid in there who's 18, um, and, and one day I walked in overheard him crying on the phone to his parents. But, Mom, if I don't get the Xbox 360 and the PlayStation 3 or, like, PlayStation 4, like, how am I going to stay sober? Right? And I'm like, kid... Man, your parents are just tired of catching you jerking off in the living room, right? Like, you're here for marijuana, $40,000 for weed, right? Like, whatever the cost of this program was, you're bitching to your parents about not getting both game consoles. Couldn't stand that kid. Um, <laughs> you know, and then there's, and then there's like, the flip side of that token. Like, the little, uh, the little dude, God, I can't remember his name. I'm trying to figure out how to cook Beth in his room. Um, with yeah and then like me in the middle right like i'm just hustling people and ping pong for cigarettes because i can't afford like seven dollars a pack so like you know i've spent a lot of time institutionalized right so i'm like really good at ping pong yeah <laughs> like like i'm really good at ping pong <laughs> and so i would like sandbag these guys and let them win like two or three games off me and they'd be like all right man well i guess you just double you want to put a cor- you want to put like a carton on it and you're like yeah i'm gonna fucking bury them <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! Yeah, so uh, you know, I always have my hustles or whatever. Um, that was my first experience with rehab. Um, I also got in fights there, uh, and almost got—I did get kicked out. Fuck, I got kicked out of there for fighting too. Oh man, that's a really good part of that story. What was that? Uh, yeah, okay, yeah, come on. So, um, got yeah, got in a fight. Like I usually, how how far into this thing? Um, a few months, right? And they're like, okay, well, good news is we're not going to kick you out. And I was like, okay, great. They're like, permanently. I was like, huh? And they're like, yeah, you are gone for two weeks. And like, and at the end of two weeks, you come back and piss clean, and then we'll let you back in and you can finish. 
But if you come back and you've gotten high, then you're shit out of luck. And they dropped me off. And I'm from South Florida, mind you, right? Suitcase full of tropical clothes. They dropped me off in fucking, uh, God, what was the name of the city? I can't remember. We're, we're Battle, Michigan. Battle Creek, Michigan, right? Lake Effect Snow, negative 30, $10 in a town I've never been in before without a phone. See you in two weeks. Hope you make it back clean. Did you, did, were you able to contact your parents? No. <laughs> no. Oh, no. I talked to my dad when they were kicking me out, and they're like, they had them like very convinced that like not to help me. You know what I mean? Like, he has to deal with this. He has to figure it out. So one of the guys that went to the facility knew I was getting kicked out, had a cousin that lived locally, put me in contact with him. This guy, uh, one of my best friends, paid for me to have a hotel room for a night and sent me some McDonald's, like, gift cards, right? And then I got in contact with this other guy, and I went and stayed at his house, and it was fucking weird, man. He, like, he had this really big collection of, like, very fringe, weird porn, like, out in his living room, like, just very visible and uh there's like no one that lived there but he had me like opening in the safe in his bedroom to sell people like pain pills right yeah he had like a big bag of like some fucking thing and people would come over and he would have me like get pain pills, like give them to him um but like it's 30 below out you know what i mean i don't have anywhere to go i don't have a job i don't know like so eventually i called up a bunch of landscaping companies because i figured there's like enough storm damage that had happened with all the snow that they could use help and i found someone willing to pay me cash for daily work and, uh, <clears throat> you know, I started doing that and I, I did make it back clean. Um, and I did finish the program. Uh, but that was asinine. You know, that was, that oh was pretty God, crazy. Dude, this is unreal. Yeah. Unreal. I think we got to pause you, you there. Got five, so I can got 57. Okay, go. The last thing we said was when you were getting off the, getting off the bus and getting high. Was that it? Is that <laughs> yeah. where we left off? Yeah. Yeah. With Narconon. With Narconon. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, Ryan, you mentioned Narconon. What, mm-hmm. what the hell is that? Uh, that's just the flavor of, uh, or that's like the name for the kind of rehab that's derived from L. Ron Hubbard's um, structure that he created while in prison. Okay. Because <laughs> he created Scientology in prison. Did you know that? No. Yeah, yeah, he was, he was incarcerated. Okay, when, give uh, me the t- touch on that. So I, I know you have some insight on this. I don't remember honestly most of it. Um, the whole thing's just a you know just a big sham. It's a cult, right? Um, there's like Xenu or something yeah. like the god like or alien Xenu supposed to like destroy your worlds or, or there's some fucking. I know crazy. nothing about it. So L. Ron Hubbard wrote a bunch of science fiction books yeah. and then based a religion off of it and then got it to be like quite famous and you know Tom Cruise and John Travolta and all that they were all Scientologists, right? Yep. You said um, were they no longer are? I don't think anyone is anymore. I, I don't know if it still exists. I think the I think that uh, I think that mask has been peeled back a little bit. Yeah. And I don't think that anyone with any credibility can really associate with them anymore. Um, but you know, it's it's pretty crazy. And so Narconon that was derived from yeah from L. Ron Hubbard. That's like his his brand of of rehab. And so this brand of rehab, mm-hmm. you were there six months. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's just completely ineffective? Yes. Yeah, it's it's nonsense. Nonsense. Yeah, it addresses nothing. Um, not 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 the. So I, for uh, it kind of depends on on your on your perspective of things. Uh, you know, some people have trouble uh, accepting the concept of spirituality, but uh, to me, 
um, addiction is very much a, a spiritual malady, you know, and it has to do with um, a lack of uh, spiritual principles, um, a willingness to live by them, uh, honesty and clarity with yourself and, and, and those kinds of things. And, and none of that is addressed um, uh, through the, so it's, you know, and there are a lot of programs for rehabilitation that are spin dries, you know, like, and this was a longer one, so it wasn't exactly a spin dry, but it's not uncommon to have insurance cover a 30-day program that does nothing for you other than give you a 30-day break from using drugs. Yeah. Which, like, there's value in that for some people, um, and, and perhaps that's enough to get some people, like, over a hump or whatever. Um, for me, <laughs> and, and, and I'm sure we're going to start getting into it, by the time that I really recovered, um, I had become such a hope-to-die gutter junkie. It wasn't like you weren't going to... 30 days without drugs wasn't going to solve anything. Six months without drugs wasn't going to solve anything until I began to address, you know, what was happening uh, inside me. Um, and that really was, um, and, and so what you said about spirituality mm -hmm. becoming one with yourself and was the true hundred mm percent. -hmm. And what's really been interesting for me over the last several years is, uh, kind of try to describe it as, um, a lot of years of my life I was, uh, hiding from good, um, you know, uh, by just doing drugs and acting out and, um, uh, doing all those things. And then I spent some time, uh, in recovery, hiding from bad. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, I really had this integration, um, of kind of the, uh, light and dark sides of my personality, right? It's like we can get into a, a debate about the duality of man and, and all that if you want to, but yeah. I, I think, I think the reality of the situation is that, uh, <clears throat> everyone has light and dark, okay. right? And, and whether yep. we want to admit that or make that a part of our external narrative, it, it makes it no less true. Um, every person has some evil, some darkness, some, uh, you know, uh, part of their personality um, that hides in the shadows. Yeah, but that's every bit as much a part of you as the, you know, puppies and rainbows, right? Yep. And all the positive things that people are able to, to hang on to and, and attach social significance too. Um, and so I, I am at a point now uh, where I've really made peace um, with both sides of my personality and uh, they're well represented and I find strength in, uh, you know, both sides of that in the light and the dark. And um, uh, I'm very comfortable with who I am now, you know, and, and I have a lot of um, confidence in that. Uh, but, you know, there's also like certain things that amuse me, right? Like I have a have a tapestry of Baphomet hanging up in my uh, in my garage gym. What, what is this? Baphomet, uh, like the the, the goat-headed devil figure with the uh, in the pentagram. Yeah. Yeah. You know, right. Um, and for me, it's really uh, it's amusing. Wait, yeah. where's that in the pentagram? Uh, it's, it's like a goat head centered. Yeah. The Baphomet is like uh, yeah. it's like Satan's son, but like yeah. he has the head of a goat, right? Yeah. And so like the pentagram is around his face, and it's just like a black tapestry like flag yeah. on the wall. And uh, one of my wife's cousins asked if. Uh, I was the devil worshiper, and uh, I was like, well, you got to believe in him, you know what I mean, to worship him. Um, no, it, it amuses me, and counterculture amuses me, and uh, I identify sometimes with the evil and dark things um, because I understand them, you yeah. know, but they don't need to define you, right? Yeah. Um, but they can be, I think it's much more powerful to accept and integrate um, those portions of your personality than to attempt to hide them, mask them, or act differently. You know, it's not in your nature. Um, and just because you have darkness in you doesn't mean that it's bad. It doesn't mean that you're a bad person. You know what I mean? Bad people are bad people. Right. Good people have darkness too. And that doesn't mean evil. It just means, you know, both sides of the spectrum. Yeah. 
Okay, so you got out of the Narcanon. Was it a Narcanon? Mm-hmm. Got out of there. You smoked weed immediately. Take yeah. it from there. Hmm. So, let's see. I ended up going back to school. Where? Um, went up to Vermont. Found this very small private school um, for intelligent kids with ADD and nonverbal learning disabilities. Um, very, very expensive. Uh, in the middle of nowhere. It's about 50 grand a semester. Who found this? My mom. Your mom? Yeah. <clears throat> um, and... Great, had a great time. College. This is college? College, yeah. Okay. Um, and lower division studies, right? So like associates or whatever. Uh, but like two of the best years of my life. Really? You know? uh, yeah. Had a great time up there. Very small class sizes, like maximum 10 or 15 kids per an instructor. And, and there's like counseling and stuff was like a part of it. And, um, uh, you know, but like very well organized for uh, minds like mine. And I remember um, I had some, some moments uh, leading into this. Uh, going to school where I, I had really kind of finally come to grips with and acknowledged like, hey, uh, you're a massive pain in the ass yeah. uh, most of the time and you have a huge chip on your shoulder and you just are so worried with everyone's opinion of you and, uh, you know, fronting and lying and faking and all this shit. Why don't, why don't you make a commitment uh, to listening to what other people have to say? Why don't you try to just be a nice guy? Like, I would really love to have friends, you know, and I have friends, like good friends growing up, like my close friends or whatever. Most people didn't like me, right. you know, it wasn't like, and I was hard to like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like I made myself quite difficult to like. Um, and so I remember having that, like, let's be interested in other people. Let's ask about what other people have going on. Let's not lie. And let's try to just like be a nice person for the sake of being nice. Because don't you like it when people are nice to you? You know, and this, like, the yeah. co- this was people at the college told you this. No, this is me talking to myself. Oh, really? Yeah, this is a completely internal conversation. After co- after the college, after Vermont? No, on the way up. On the way up. On the way up. Okay. Um, and I remember really. That's f- probably why you had a good time there. I had the best fucking time of my life. I made such good friends. Now, of course, <laughs> I was also going pretty wild. Um, yeah. it, but it was all it was all pretty benign at that time. There's like, so, uh, my dad put me on budget. My dad's a big budget guy. Oh, yeah. And uh, not a big, like, entertainment expense budget guy, right? So yeah. like, propose me a budget. We'll go over it together, right? So I proposed it to him. He's like, yeah, I'm not giving you all that. <laughs> he was like, uh, I think we, we worked it out line by line. It ended up being, like, I got $117 a month from him. Right? <laughs> line by line. Yeah, dude. 117 My dad. My dad is... Uh, is many wonderful things, but he is also Mr. Anal Retentive Airline Pilot Captain Dave. Like, things are very objective, you know, and uh, very rational. And uh, so, obviously, that's not enough money, right? So, I started yeah. selling weed. <laughs> and uh, it was, uh, we had a connection through a couple of my buddies uh, where we could get a QP of this Canadian weed for $630. And we could resell it for $20 a gram and $50 an eighth. So, it's yeah. like, something like over 1200 um, yeah. uh, you know, per QP. And that's uh, doubling your money. Yeah. And a lot more than that because these kids, it's a perfect captive market, all right? Imagine yeah. this. $50,000 a semester. Every student here is ADD and compulsively addicted. They're sitting in the middle of nowhere in the mountains in Vermont. We're on a private school campus where police are not allowed to enter without permission from the campus president and the resident directors. We sold weed to all the resident directors. So every time cops are coming on campus, we knew an hour ahead of time, just got our shit and left. Right, so like, it was a consequence-free environment. Uh, so campus directors are kids. Yeah, well, the resident directors are the yeah, RAs, right. RDs, right? The the campus president is, is an employee of the of the campus, but 
um, or some of the RA, the RAs are kids, the RDs, I think, were employees of the school. I don't remember the mechanics, yeah, but right, we right, sold it to them, right? <laughs> so, uh, so we didn't get in trouble. And, uh, you know, it was like all day long. Were you guys getting high every day? Oh, my God, dude. It was just, it was just nonstop. So you're in class high? All the time. Yeah. You get out of class, and I'd hop in my buddy's uh, Ford Escape. The campus was a big square, one-way road. And we'd come up, the dorms were on the top. All five dorm buildings. We drive by, I'd hop in Jeffy's truck. We pick up one or two people. We drive off camp campus and go on a, a mountain loop, right? So we lived in in the mountains of Vermont, and there was all these roads that were just loops around the mountain. And there's like the Friendship Loop and the Water Barrel Loop, and this water barrel sitting in the middle of fucking nowhere, a pipe sticking out of a hill with like the clearest spring water just dripping into this barrel. We go dip a bong in it, <laughs> you know. And uh, um, and we would go, we'd smoke, we'd roll a blunt or two. And we'd go smoke. And then when we come back to the campus, we'd drop off whoever's in the back seat, pick up the next two people, go get some blunts, roll them, drive on a loop, right? And that was like all day long. Just rolling blunts. Did you guys smell like stink? Yes, of course we did. Yeah. Didn't the teacher say anything? I didn't give a shit. It was Vermont. It was a college campus. They all smoked weed too. You know, or they were frying acid or like whatever. They're like, no one cared. Um, you know, and, and so, uh, but then um, also like the kind of the flip side of that is like, it was very easy to get uh, prescription medications mm. um, because everyone was ADD, right? So they had ah. like a, a psychologist like on staff and like or shrink or whatever. And so uh, I got this situation set up where uh, I just I just manipulated these doctors into prescribing way, way, way over prescribing me. And then I, I also got a prescription for Xanax. So I would get like I think it was four thirty milligram Adderalls per day. And uh, 62 uh, milligram Xanax bars per month, like the big ones. I would get those every month. And so every month I'd refill my Xanax, and then me and all my boys would forget like four days at a time. You know, because Xanax take a bunch of it. You can't remember shit. You're kidding me. No, no. Yeah. Um, and what is Xanax prescribed for? Anxiety. It's a anxiety. Benzodiazepine. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> you literally would. Wouldn't remember four days. Wouldn't remember shit. Yeah. we just eat the pills until they were all gone, and we couldn't remember anything in the period of time that it took us. Um, you know, and of course, it's like Are snorting. you operating in class? Like you're, like you're going through class? And yeah, I got straight A's. Yeah, I got straight A's in the school. Um, you know, and like, of course, yeah, it's just like all kinds of crazy shit. I would snort an Adderall, drink like three scoops and no explode, and go down to the gym where I had like a work-study program. I got paid two hours a night, five days a week to be in the weight room. Um, so I'd get all out of my mind and go down there with one of my buddies, and, and we'd, you know, get crazy and lift weights. And, uh, you know, I just, I had so much fun at this school. Like the Adderall and the Xanax were a little bit, that was probably as serious as it got when it was there. But for the most part, it was very innocent fun, you know, and very cool. Like a lot of drinking at mountain houses and like parties and, and that kind of stuff. But for the most part, like quite innocent, you know. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the Xanax was probably like the riskiest, yeah. you know, thing that was going on. Um, and, but for the most part, it was, you know, just smoking weed and having fun every once in a while, eating some mushrooms and going out to swim at the culvert and driving around on the mountain loops. And, you know, it was, uh, I made some of the best friends in my life because I did the thing. I was nice. I yeah. listened. I asked questions. I, I wanted to hear about other people. Wow. Um, and I made some of the best friends I'd ever made. <clears throat> and so, um, phenomenal experience. And then off from there, where'd you go from there? Uh, from there. So you came home. Uh, where was home at this point? Florida. I always okay. consider Florida home. Okay. Florida's home. my dad. Yep. Uh, you know. Um, uh, went to FAU, Florida Atlantic University ah. in uh, Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. And uh, it just quickly got back into like, and then things started getting really serious, right? Like, uh, 
I met this guy who would come through with an ounce of Coke on the front, um, you know, where I didn't have to pay for it. Like I would owe him for it. It's on the front. Uh, like I would call him and within an hour he'd bring me like a, just a big ball blow, you know, resell it. Um, oh, and at this time, this was when, uh, the opiate um, crisis was getting really out of hand and there's all these pain clinics in South Florida before all the doctors got arrested and shit, but like, um, blues, Roxy's, um, were really, really popular. Roxycodone, 30 milligram little blue pills. And uh, I started smoking those. Wait, what's, wait, what, what's the Roxy? Yeah. It was a very strong opiate, um, similar to a painkiller. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what, you know, is it oxycontin like similar or even more similar? Yeah, okay. Roxy, yeah, roxycodone. I think it's like the uh, some generic equivalent, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, and so we would smoke those. You know, smoke them. Yeah. Put them chop on, them up. Put the whole pill on a piece of foil, and then hold a lighter under it. You're kidding. And me. the pill slides. You call it drawing mazes because it leave a little black streak, and then you slide it this way, and then slide it that way, so you draw like a shape on your foil. You know? But as the pill is sliding, it smokes. You know, so you chase it with a straw. Right, and, and you'd smoke the pills. I started snorting. I was doing a bunch of coke, and uh, man, how did everything even? Where did I go from Florida? Uh, and everybody was doing this. Yeah, well, everybody that I was associated with. Right? Yeah. Um, what did I even? Did you get through school? Did you drop out? No, I dropped out. I didn't finish. I, didn't. I barely went. Um, you know, I, I like five semesters and I completed like nine credits or something stupid. Yeah. Like, yeah, it was, you just never it was went complete waste of time. Right. Uh, yeah. And then I moved to, uh, here actually, I think, um, from there. So I, I came out, my mom was living in Del Mar and, uh, I knew that, um, you know, tech was still probably going to be my future. Yep. Uh, like my entire professional career is either like tech or sales or right? yep. business development or, um, it engineering or security. And, uh, <clears throat> Got a job with a MSP in Carlsbad, um, and uh, just ended up just being this very immoral company. Um, if I had known uh, better, then um, I would have sued the shit out of them. Um, they wrote me this contract, never honored it, offered me a regional directorship, and just very fraudulent, um, immoral people. Um, they were, they were, they didn't actually have an interest in doing IT. The IT company was owned by a merchant bank, and what they were trying to do was get us to go get IT clients so that we could try to capture their credit card processing. Uh. And, uh, you know, just assholes. I ended up losing everything, um, listening to their promises. I had a bunch of, uh, I had a storage unit in Florida that was repossessed, lost all my stuff because they didn't pay me, and, um, you know, and, and all that kind of thing. And, uh, Let's see. So the, after that, so I was engaged. Um, I, I was out here, and there was this girl in Vermont that I had dated, and uh, it had been pretty serious. And uh, we had kept in contact um, for years, very, very close friends. And at the time, mm, my, uh, my, my grandfather was on the way out. He had Alzheimer's, and she ended up moving up to Oregon um, to be his caregiver. And, uh, and, and helped him um, through the end. And, and after she was done up there, um, we were officially dating. You know, we had been talking and stuff, but we had, like, definitely gotten yeah. back together. And she moved to California with me. And, uh, you know, we had a pretty good life for a little bit. A um, couple Labradors, condo in Solana Beach. Um, I was doing full commission, not full commission sales. I was doing sales. This was a different, for a different home, company now. Yeah. Uh, home contracting. Like, uh, I was selling roofs. Dual pane window retrofits, text coat, um, you know, roof tear off and, and overlays, and uh, like kitchen and bathroom remodels. Yep. I made a shitload of money with this company. It was insane. 
Um, but you know, I was unhappy and, and I started, uh, doing drugs and so you um, weren't doing drugs with her right off the bat. Right? No, I never did them with her. She didn't get high with me. Yeah. Um, but you know, she had been in an accident, uh, and I helped her negotiate this insurance settlement and we got like $80,000 yeah. and, uh, just wasted it all. Right. Um, and poor girl, not her fault, my fault. Yeah. hundred percent my fault on drugs. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't like as bad at this point. It was kind of like a. I was mostly good with her, you know, but I had, like some drugs and and I was doing, and then I, I got more and more into it. I had this kid on my team. He, he liked to do a bunch of blow. He would show up at my house at like Tuesday at a 10 a.m. with like a Ziploc full of blow and be like, let's do lines till we can't see straight. Like, man, it's 10 a.m. on a Tuesday. We got to go pitch a customer in an hour. Yeah. Like, yep. <laughs> um, and you do it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I and, uh, you know, obviously she got fed up. Um, things weren't good and she left me and, uh, I didn't, I didn't think that she would, you know, yeah. we were engaged and, um, really good for her, uh, to get away from me at, at that point. Um, but that was like, God, man, I don't know that I've ever heard that bad. I remember sitting in this condo in Solana beach with her not there and just all of this shit and like nowhere to go and not, and no idea what to do with it. And like no one there with me and just like it being very, very bad and lonely. And, uh, Ended up taking an apartment. And this is where things really start spinning out of control. Mm. I had an apartment in North County for a while with a Marine. And uh, I started, I was abusing my Adderall really heavily. And Adderall meaning you were on Adderall. Yeah. And uh, now, Had you been on Adderall almost your whole life? Almost my whole life. Uh, except for the time uh, like in high school. Right? Prescribed by a doctor. Yes. Because you needed it, quote unquote. Right. Um but I hadn't really abused it the way, like I did a little bit in Vermont, but not like I was now, you so, know? So and you regularly took it on normal prescription stuff, mm -hmm. but as far as abusing it goes, that means? Like just eating a shitload of it, like yeah. way, way, way more than my prescription. Right? Okay, got it. Um, and I didn't have medical insurance at the time, and this was like pre-Obama, like Medicaid yeah. or anything. Um, so I couldn't afford uh, to keep getting my prescriptions filled, you know, I couldn't like it was uh, out of pocket for a psychiatrist visit and you had to see a shrink every time you get it refilled. They couldn't just write the script and the script itself was expensive. So like 400, $500 a month for wow. me to be able to keep a medication. And, uh, when Denise left me, uh, I was heartbroken and, um, the amphetamines, uh, it's very comorbid with sexual dysfunction, right. Um, for me and for a lot of people. And, uh, I sought uh, comfort in uh, sex workers, right? Professionals. Yeah. Um, and I met this girl, and uh, she was beautiful, and she was fucked up. And uh, she was in this hotel room in North County, and, um, you know, I went to see her, and uh, she had this plate and just a pile of Coke on it. And I'm, at this point, um, I had run out of Adderall uh, at one point, and a girl had been like, oh, let's come over. I have a line of meth for you. You'll be fine, right? Um, and I was ready to, like, meth, you know. So you'd oh. never done meth before at this point? No. And so I did a line, uh, this meth, and I was like, it's a lot like Adderall. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and all of a sudden, like, the taboo was kind of shattered for me, and it wasn't, like, that big of a deal. And so I start smoking meth. And uh, <clears throat> I meet up with this girl, and she has a plate of cocaine, and I have a meth pipe and a bunch of meth. And, uh, and we smoke until you can't see through the room, yeah. you know? And... Um, she was young and impressionable, and I knew that I could get my hooks in her, you know? And I wanted, you just don't want to be alone, especially right. not when you're that fucked up, yeah. you know? Uh, yeah. it's, it's very helpful to have consensus. Exactly. And, uh, 
you know, she had some, she called me, it was like some crisis, and I strapped on my cape and told her to pack up her room and she could come stay with me and, um, you know, she could be in, in my room in my condo and, uh, it, you know, it was, oh no, I don't remember how I met her, so I was driving a taxi for um, a North Beach taxi company. She gets in the car one day. I'm going to give her a ride and I'm driving. She's in the back seat and she's talking to a John, yeah. <laughs> right? And yeah. she's being like quite explicit and she gets off the phone and I was like, Hey, listen, this is none of my business, but what the fuck is wrong with you? He's like, what? And I was like, how could you possibly have a conversation like that blatant and, and non-discreet, like in front of me or on the phone with anyone? Like, are you out of your mind? And, uh, I, <laughs> right. Like I ended up getting her her phone number and uh then i went and met her and, and we had that whole yeah um experience and uh so she comes to to be with me and um you know it, it's not like you ever try to get involved uh you know in in sex work uh, but sometimes you know uh, so this is what she's already doing yeah right yeah um and i see an opportunity uh to make things safer uh, and more productive for her. You stop taking these risks, you're going to go to jail. Um, you know, this is how you market yourself. This is how you uh, look someone up online. This is how you verify an identity. This is how you, um, you know, a number of other things. And then, you know, before you know it, I'm kind of managing her. You yeah, know, and right. I didn't, I didn't, that wasn't my intention. <clears throat> but she was safer with me. Yeah. You know, yep. and um, it paid for our drugs, you know, it paid for our hotel rooms. And she made friends, and they didn't want to work for these guys that were hurting them, and that were abusing them, and that were putting them in unsafe situations. And uh, I never, uh, I never, I never forced anyone to do anything. Um, that wasn't uh, my get down. Um, but you know, I, I did get to a place where uh, I would have a conversation with someone about like, I can help you make more money uh, while taking less risks and be safer. You know, yeah. and I ended up working with a, a number of girls and uh, we headed out to Vegas. Um, <clears throat> it was uh, no Vegas was when I got away from her. OK, so we I did this for a while. So you had a whole crew here in San Diego. Yeah, for a little bit. I don't want to say like a whole crew. There's a, a few that I worked with and we wanted to get away. We wanted to get out of the life. And so I went uh, back to Arizona with this original girl which is where she was from. Yeah. And she had a, a house that was left partially to her by her grandmother. Now, at this point, during this whole thing, are you doing a lot of drugs? Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm sitting in a, you know, hotel parking lot with a gun in my lap and a meth pipe, like, waiting for, like, whatever person that she's seeing right now to be done and leave. And, uh, you know, just, like, wondering how the fuck I got here. And so I go back to so Arizona. So those thoughts went through your mind. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, like, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I just, where, what, what happened, you know? Yeah. Um, but you're so deep in it. And this is the only way for you to be able to continue forward feeling like you're okay is to be surrounded by people who are doing the same thing, right? And I've gone so deep down this hole that it feels like there's no turning back. And um, I <clears throat> try to make it out with her we, we go back to Arizona and uh, her family's so toxic oh my god I've never seen anything like it uh, her mom her brother's in prison he killed his best friend um, playing Russian roulette right shot him in the head 
her mom had a psychotic break when this happened and uh, she started um, dumpster diving and hoarding and so her mom spent all day looking for hot dumpsters and she would go to dumpsters behind stores where they'd thrown away food and like whatever items and she would bring it home that's how she was feeding um, all these kids that lived with her and um, and she had a younger sister uh, that, that lived with us and that was also um, quite messed up and you know, I, I think I did my best uh, for her, and I, I tried to make things better. I partially remodeled that house and you know, rebuilt this truck and blah, blah, blah. Um, but in the end, it was so toxic and it was so yeah. ugly that I finally got to the point where, um, despite being uh, participatory in all of it. You were doing drugs at this point still? Um, yeah, not as much because they were hard to get. Right. You know? Um, I was still over it. I was like, I, I won't do this anymore. I won't be treated this way. And I had been starting a company with a guy out there and he was coming over to pick me up to work out. And I just packed my shit and grabbed my dog and threw it in the back of his truck. And I was like, I'll stay in our office. You know, I'm done here. I'm never coming back. You told her that. Yeah. And I, I heard a number of years ago, actually, um, several, several years ago, uh, about her through this guy that I had been, uh, we reconnected like once briefly, several years later. And, uh, I guess she had beaten her mom um, so badly that her mom, like, lost an eye, and she's in prison. So, there's that. Wow. Um, and, I mean, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I'm now at a point, J.D., uh, I've compromised every single um, ethical fiber of my being. You know, every moral that I've ever had or held dear or thought that was um, something, a line that I wouldn't violate, I've violated. And... Uh, the things that I can say about myself that I've done at this point sicken me. And uh, I don't, you know, I, I don't know what to do other than to leave. And I want to get away. And um, so I'm, I'm you know, I'm really good at cards. Uh, I decided I was going to go to Vegas and play poker for a couple of years. And, uh, dude, I, I went on Craigslist and I, like, wrote some post and, like, found someone who was going from Arizona to Vegas like, got a ride with them, had enough money for a hotel room for, like, two nights, put another post on Craigslist, like, hey, this is my situation, I'm in this hotel room, I have unemployment, I'll have X amount of dollars on X day, um, like, I need a place to live, because I can't even, like, afford this room anymore, I have a chocolate lab, he's well-trained, you know, like, the whole thing, yeah. and some guy read it and reached out and gave me a room in his house, contingent on me, like, paying rent when I had unemployment. And so I went and did that. I started playing cards, and I made some money. Were you doing drugs at this point? No, I was clean no. at this point. Really? Um, yeah. Um, I, I wanted to stop. I got away, you know. Um, and I wasn't, like, squeaky clean, but I wasn't, yeah. like, right. um, you know, in it. And uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's always it's always, uh, it's always something. Uh, so I, I started making some money, and I hooked up with the wrong girl. And uh, just right back in it. You know what I mean? Almost instantly, except for this time. Was she a stripper? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, except for this time, she showed me how to shoot up. <clears throat> and uh, I had never used a needle, you know. And um, You had obviously heard about it. Right. And knew that, okay, you get to that point. Right. Right. And uh, it's funny, too, because I wanted it, right? Like, I, I, I let people try on me, like, three times before it worked. The first two times someone tried to hit uh, one of my veins, they missed. And I didn't get high. And then the third time, I just let him keep trying, you know, the third time, and I got high. Yeah. And uh, that was... Uh, was it heroin? No, speed. So speed. I don't, um, 
I don't really like going slow. So my whole life, it's mostly been stimulants. It's yeah. been Adderall, okay. it's been cocaine, it's been speed. Um, I, I've seen, I, and I did plenty of heroin. Um, you did with, I did plenty of heroin with yeah. my speed, but I almost never just did heroin. I, I didn't like it. And the first time, uh, the first time I ever did a shot of straight heroin, I overdosed, and I didn't know I was doing a shot of straight heroin. Um, <clears throat> but you know, I let this girl hit my arm, and uh, that was it dude yeah you know what i mean i was off to the races and um what, what kind of speed like what was that meth meth okay yeah um and you know it's interesting uh the shooting meth you you can't like you don't really overdose there's no yeah. so you over amp and pass out you yeah. know if you do too much of it but you won't like die you know right um <clears throat> so i just started slamming all this meth and i had this dealer uh and i couldn't you know, afford to hook up at one point. And he knew about my skill sets on the computer electronically. And so he decides he's going to test me, right? And I hit him up and I'm asking him for a front. And he goes, we're going to go do some dirt together. And I was like, yeah, okay. So I hop in his uh, pickup and he takes me over to Home Depot. And he backs up next to the lawn garden section in a parking space that's like facing kind of you know the outside area you'll have like an emergency door like through the gate yeah. like, or through the fence or whatever yeah. like you hit this door and like the alarm will sound or whatever but you can get out if there's a fire so he like backs up where the back of his truck is in a parking spot like looking at that and he goes go inside and come out with something valuable and i was like okay <laughs> you know so i went in walked all the way towards the end um towards the lawn and garden section and grabbed a couple chainsaws one in each hand chainsaws mm-hmm yep and uh, kicked the fucking bar on that door, ran through the long garden section, threw the chainsaws in the back of his truck, hopped in, and we took off. And we took him to a pawn shop and sold him. <clears throat> but that was his litmus test for me, right? He wanted yeah. to know if I was for real or not. And he goes, okay, I got some people to introduce you to. And uh, I told him, you know, actually, I don't want to meet anyone. Why don't you tell me what you're thinking about, and let's, you know, work yeah. this out together. Uh, and he knew uh, that I knew how to hack and, and do a number of different things. And so we put together this team, um, allegedly. And yeah. uh, uh, if you want to be successful, we'll speak in hypotheticals. If you want to be successful um, stealing money and identities, uh, then you need a source. You need several sources, right? Um, you need someone to get you uh, IDs to work with. You need someone to get you um, copies of checks, financials, vendor information, and stuff to work with. And so um, let's say that you were attempting to run uh, an identity theft and extortion ring. Uh, you might want to have a person um, who could introduce you uh, or could facilitate relationships with people that could bring you this information. And that person might introduce you to employees of a check cashing store or a payday loan store yep. who, who might put um, an Excel file with the first and last name, address, phone number, social security number, driver's license number of every person that comes in to cash a check or take out a payday loan. And that person might once a week hand off a USB drive like that. Um, to someone attempting to extort individuals. And then let's say if you wanted to be able to use those identities to do things like steal money, you're going to need accounts to steal money from. So you might seek someone um, to do things like dumpster diving, right? And go behind casinos and pick out sheafs of unshredded paper and see what you might find. 
might find a contracting company that wrote a $20,000 check and the account and routing numbers right on it. You might be able to understand the names of the people who've established the relationships that allow these checks to be paid in cash. And the other interesting thing <clears throat> about vendor relationships with casinos in Vegas is that very often they'll honor checks at the cage um, from vendors that they have business relationships with. So like if a worker wants to come cash a paycheck, they yeah. can do that. And so um, once you have if you were to be looking to do things like this and you have a source of information and a source of money, then you would probably need um, a source of disposable people to go and pick up checks and cash checks and so forth. So one might orchestrate a situation where they drove around residential neighborhoods in Las Vegas and cracked into home Wi-Fi to use unidentifiable networks with which to set up dummy checking accounts and things of that nature with identities that have been stolen and provided to them. And then that person might want to be able to create some fake IDs for hookers, junkies, alcoholics, people on the street for whom the idea of like, hey, I'm going to give you a check and you're going to go cash it and you can keep $1,000 and you're going to give the rest to this guy. People are willing to do that. Yep. Uh, people who are addicted don't see very far into the future. Um, they don't see very far past $1,000. So hypothetically, if one wanted to set up an operation where one stole a bunch of money with almost no consequences, they could do so by hierarchically building these types of relationships <coughs> and uh, insulate themselves quite well from harm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it would probably work pretty well. Yep. So... That's not unsimilar to some of the things that I experienced. And um, when I was in Vegas and I got tired once again of the life, right? And man, there's so much more to unpack there. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, you get tired and I, I wanted to leave. And I did a geographical. And a guy that wanted to leave also from San Diego said, okay, well, I'll pay you gas money um, if you drive us out of here. And uh, left Vegas with this guy. And uh, when I came back uh, to San Diego, I was clean for about 30 days. And I had um, a line on a job with a guy that that first tech company I worked for when I moved out here, lasting relationship, uh, friendship with a guy that I worked with there, put me up in his condo, got me a job at a tech company that he was working at. And uh, it was like, oh man, less than a month after I started, I'm walking through the hallway and I hear some guys talking about a problem at a client's company. And they're like, oh, well, these executives' computers are randomly dropping internet. And, Blah, blah, blah. Long story short, it sounded super suspicious to me. I said, mm, sounds like someone's proxying data traffic. Why don't you look, why don't you run a port scan and see if there's a squid proxy running there? And, you know, if there is, you probably got someone who's, like, forcing a false DNS lease to those executive machines so that they can steal or intercept data. And they went and did the scan. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's what's happening. So uh, my boss was like, I need you to fly to Vegas. <laughs> that's where this company was. Uh, like, I need you to fly to Vegas tomorrow um, and figure out what's going on. So um, I get sent back to Vegas uh, because I, like, kind of uh, out of the cold, like, called this situation. Yeah. And I was right. And, dude, uh, I had my dealer pick me up from the airport. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'd been clean for a month, and it wasn't even like I didn't even get a taxi. Like I had the dude there waiting for me with dope. I was shooting dope before I got off the airport premises. And uh, I went and I did the work. Uh, I found, I did a forensic investigation. I found the hard drives. Some web developers that have been working for this company got fired and they didn't like it. And so they were trying to steal data um, from the company yeah. that they were going to use to extort later. And, and I was able to prove that. And then the company was like very happy for like a moment. Um, but then they couldn't get me back on the plane and they couldn't get me home. And I stayed there for like... Were you like, hey, I'm busy or... <laughs> no, I just didn't answer. I just went nuts. And I stayed there for like an extra two weeks until every single fucking option I had was gone. Every last penny that I could have used to get back to San Diego. I missed all the plane flights, the rental car, no more hotel room, nothing. Had they known your history? No. <laughs> right. And so I managed to get back somehow. I can't remember. I like begged, lie, cheat, steal, whatever. I get back to San Diego. And at this point, though, I'm so off the rails. And like, and so at this point, so out there, you're what? You're shooting crystal meth, mm -hmm. smoking meth, it. A little bit of heroin. Uh, once I started shooting, smoking was over. Smoking was, was over. Yeah. yeah, dude. And I was, I was a gutter junkie, dude. Don't like if I don't have dope to shoot, and you passed me a meth pipe, I'd real quick dump it on the top of my shoe when you weren't looking, and I would go into the bathroom, scrape it off my shoe into the spoon, and shoot it. Like, I was not, yeah. Because um, <clears throat> so, once you get to the shooting, there's nothing that tops that. You know, why, would you, why would you smoke it, you dirty junkies? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you're covered in soot and shit, and you just, like, smell like shit, and you're pulling out a meth pipe every 15 minutes. How yeah. do you get through your day? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you can't, <laughs> you can't do anything. It's like all these things that you, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, rationalize and, uh, and convince yourself of. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I came back, and... Uh, I, you know, just continued using at like the same what rate. Did, what did the job say? Did you get fired? Yeah, I did get fired eventually. Um, when you came back, like, dude, where were you? Yeah, I don't even remember, you know? Like, yeah. I, they were obviously, like, not happy, um, <laughs> clearly. And, uh, but, so it, it gets worse and worse. And I'm like, I'm going into the office. I'll be at my desk for, like, 15 minutes. And I'll go to the bathroom to shoot dope. And I'll be in there for, like, an hour and a half. And then an hour and a half? Come back, immediately leave. Yeah, because you just get, like, sidetracked. And whatever. It's, you know, just, you're tweaker you fucking you would anybody come into the bathroom uh, probably i don't know you know yeah I, I really don't even remember oh. and i would just leave you know and uh oh god so this stuff i all definitely like did so like i i'm not any any longer concerned with consequences right just with getting dope and money like that is what i need that's I need, it i need money for the dope and so i start forging paychecks i had uh I had some check stock paper, and I had magnetic ink um, that they use, Micker ink, um, for printing checks. And uh, I had a car with a power outlet in the uh, glove box. And so I would go to, like, Saquon or Barona or whatever, and I would go into the cage, and I would cash my paycheck, and I would go and spend all the money, and then I would go back out to the parking garage, and I would shoot some dope, and I would plug the printer into the center console, and I would print up a phony check. And I would walk right back in and cash it. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> how, how much time in between these these cashing? Oh, like an hour. An it hour? Like a couple hours. You know what I mean? Like it wouldn't even be a shift change. You know? I just didn't give a fuck. I was... Was, I was it a different person's... Sometimes, you know? I, yeah, but I didn't care. Like I would walk right back up to the same person. And, yeah, it's just another check. I didn't cash this one earlier. You know? Like <laughs> whatever. <laughs> like shit. So, yeah. And then where would you... Somebody bring it to you in the parking lot? What bring me what the, the dope? 
No, I have the dope with me. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Or I'd like you know call someone or hook yeah. up or yeah, like yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and so obviously that didn't last very long, JD. Right. Right. Like, <laughs> and the attribution was made quite quickly, and uh, that and a, and a couple other things. So. Um, I'm coming home to my, uh, my condo one night and I, and I had told Don, the guy I was living with when I came back and when I was first clean, I was like, Don, if I start getting high around you, I will fucking rob you. I will take everything from you and I will lie to you about it. I'm not a good guy when I'm getting high. It's, it's not Don's fault that I started getting high again, Yeah, but he was super interested. You know, he like, all of a sudden starts coming back to me. He's like, God, so you know that meth, you know, he said, you can get that like locally. Yeah, and it was like three or four times he says that, and I'm like, finally, like, all right, man, give me some cash. I'll get some speed. You know what I mean? Is that what you want? Like, and that's what I did, and uh, and I was back off to the races quite quickly. And did he shoot it up too? No, he smoked it. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> so he had given me his pin number at one point to go pull like money out for him or something, and I'm like all spun out one night, and I take his wallet, and you know, he like left it on the table, and I went and I pulled some money out of an ATM. And uh, it's funny that that was actually the nail in my coffin. Um, so uh, there's a case being built uh, against me by the feds yeah. at this point. And um, they, I, I guess, are like looking for like a preponderance of evidence with which to convict me. Um, and I go and use this debit card to steal some money out of the ATM. And Don reports it uh, to the police uh, that money had been stolen from his account. And the police do an investigation, and there I am on the gas station camera, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, quite clearly me. Uh, and so I, I guess there was, like, some amount of interagency cooperation. Uh, I went to go pick up some speed and uh, buy some toys for my dog, some beach toys. And uh, I came back, and all along the street, there's all these, like, blacked-out SUVs. And um, I, I knew what time it was. Yeah. You know what I mean? And uh, I lived in this little place with, like, a gated parking uh, parking lot. And so I go to pull in the parking lot, and I can see uh, my window on the side of the building. I can see my roommate kind of, like, bird-dogging. He's, like, looking out, looking for me. And there's, like, guys in the room with him. I'm like, all right. You know, and I could have turned around and left. Yeah. Right? I could have, but I was so tired. Now I was so tired of the life. I didn't want to do it anymore. And so I just parked my car took a deep breath, grabbed my shit, and walked out. And the FBI and the local police swarmed me on the stairs, uh, walking up to go in my condo. And uh, it was funny, because I had been going to see this girl, so I'm, like, really well-dressed, <laughs> like, ankle leather Italian boots and, like, jeans and this nice blue shirt. And I have a bag with all these, like, dog beach toys in it and then a camera case, like, with a half ounce of meth and a bunch of loaded rigs in it. And... Uh, Cops come and get me, and they're showing me uh, surveillance photos. You know, me in the gas station, and me cashing checks in these different places. I'm just like, that's not me. And then they pull um, this camera case out. It's full of drugs and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, it's not mine. And uh, obviously it is, and they arrest me. Um, <clears throat> so I go to jail. Mm. It was the first time uh, that I'd ever been arrested. Um, I've only really gotten in trouble once in my life. Um, and... I uh, I was in booking for like 36 hours, so for like every four hours for like a day and a half, I got moved from one room to another, and like I fought a dude for a roll of toilet paper to use as a pillow at one point, and like <clears throat> um, it's just a nightmare, dude. I had been awake for like six or seven days when they got me. Yeah. 
Um, so I'm like, I'm at the place where I'm seeing like shadow people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like peripheral vision and like I'm bad shape. And uh, I finally get a cell. And this skinny little, little scrawny little white kid runs in. And he's like, you A, B, or you would, dog. And I'm like, I'm going to sleep. Get the fuck out of my cell. You know? <clears throat> and uh, I thought that I was uh, locked up for a few days. Um, when I went to sentencing, I had uh, 18 days credit. Um, they give you two days credit for every day that you're in. So I was in, I was arrested. I was in jail for nine or ten days, something like that. Um, and I was arrested in El Cajon, taken to jail in El Cajon. But when I was released, I was downtown. I have no idea how I got there. Uh, <clears throat> so I remember I get into uh, a room with a phone, and they're like, you can call a bail bondsman or your parents or whatever. And so I call my mom. Mm, I call a bail bondsman. And the only thing that I'm telling everyone is I do not want my dad to know. Do not call my father. Do not tell my father. <clears throat> I don't want my dad to know I'm in jail. And uh, I picked up the phone to talk to um, the bail bondsman. After I talked to him, the first thing he said was, we just talked to your dad. And I just started crying, man. I didn't want my dad to know. I was so ashamed. You know? Yeah. And uh, and they called him. And so that cat was out of the bag. And uh, they brought me in on 15 felony charges. Um, uh, interstate commerce fraud, forgery, device access controls, computer fraud and abuse act. Um, uh, and on and on. And uh, <clears throat> it's a massive bail, like half a million dollar bail or something. Um, yeah, it was obscene, dude. I was like nonviolent first offender. And like most of these guys are in here for like beating the shit out of a woman or something. And they're like $5,000 bail. Um, <clears throat> wow. And, uh, and then after all that, right? So it's like all these charges, this massive bail. And then they are, they ROR me. They release me on my own recognizance. Um, What's your dad say? Did you, did you talk to him? Uh, God, I can't remember if I talked to him while I was in jail or not. Um, <clears throat> they decided they were not going to bail me out. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I didn't spend the money. I'll just, you know, I'll be in here for a little bit and then I'll be fine. And they uh, released me on my own recognizance. And uh, so what does that mean? So that's they, they, you go in front of a judge, you have like a video arraignment and they determine that um, you're not like a risk, um, like a flight risk or uh, risk to the public or, or anything like that. There's no reason to keep you in jail. You're not sentenced yet. Um, so they release you on your own recognizance and give you a court date um, to come back to. So I was let go. Um, and I still had this rental car for a couple days. And so I, I it's funny, dude, too, when they're letting me out of jail, uh, I go down uh, to the room and I forgot what I had come in in you know and i had been awake for so long and asleep for so long and everything but i forgot that i was all dressed up so like they go to let like a bunch of us go and i'm down there putting on these like italian leather boots (laughs) (laughs) this fucking dress shirt to be let out like downtown not knowing where the fuck i am and uh, i make it back up to el cajon to the parking lot um, to get this rental car and pick my dog up and uh you know my roommate is just destroyed and uh, I, I get my dog, and, and when I hop in this car, I, I pull down the visor, and there's like two loaded hypes uh, speeding them. And uh, I, I shot one of them, and I got rid of one of them, and that was the last time I ever took a shot. And uh, I remember driving 
on the highway and just um, completely losing it, right? Like I start uh, <clears throat> sobbing and apologizing to my dog. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. That's all I could say. Just like apologizing. Um, and I pull over so I don't fucking wreck the car, you yeah. know. And, uh, dude, so I call a family friend. I call my dad. He says, you need to talk to Ronnie, who's a family friend, who's an interesting story in himself, but we won't go there. <laughs> so yeah. over time already. But um, he tells me about N.A. And he tells me, he gives me the N.A. hotline phone number. And he goes, go to a meeting, find the nearest meeting. And he goes, go and don't leave until it's over. I said, all right. So I went to this meeting. And uh, there's this guy there, right? Super cool looking. He's got a nice watch. He's young. He's good looking. He's jacked. He's all these tattoos. Like he's very funny and animated. People like him, you know. And I remember thinking to myself, like, okay, if this guy is is doing it, like maybe it's not so bad, you know. Uh, but I sat there in this room and I didn't know how to participate. I didn't know if there was like a list or like you know these people were getting called, like you know sharing and everything. And I wanted to talk so bad, but I didn't know how to do it. And I just sat there and I shook, you know. I just I just shook. And I'm sure I was crying. And this girl who was my connection and also, um, you know, my favorite uh, hookup uh, sent me a text and um, told me that I could come stay with her, you know. And so that was my plan. As soon as this meeting is over, I'm going to go down to Chula Vista and I'm going to go stay with this chick and it's going to be cool. I'll get high. I'll feel better. And on the way out the door, uh, you know, I stayed to the end of the meeting. And on the way out the door, this hand reaches out and grabs my arm and this, this I look up and it's this guy that I thought looked cool and he's yeah. like he's like wait a second bro talk to me I said what's going on and uh, it all came out 15 felony charges I can't stop shooting dope I just got out of jail I have nowhere to live <laughs> you know it's, it's a bad spot and uh, he's like okay 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 calm down calm down you know and he goes and makes some phone calls and clears his schedule and he takes me to another meeting and after that meeting, he takes me to a bonfire at a friend's house in the program. And after that, I don't know if we went to another meeting or what the deal was, but he takes me back to the parking lot in front of the Serenity shop in Claremont Mesa. And he says, park your car right here. You sleep here. And he said, if anyone bothers you, you tell them you're waiting for the next meeting. He said, even if it's a cop. He said, even if it's two in the morning. He said, I did this. He said, I lived here in my truck. He said, you'll be okay. So the next morning I woke up <clears throat> and this guy was standing outside of my truck. He had a cup of coffee. And it's I the same up. guy. Same guy. Went out, drank coffee, went to a meeting, hung out with him all day, went to bed, woke up the next morning in this parking lot and that guy was there again. And I got out angry because <clears throat> I had just spent so many years in a life where no one gives no one associates with you that doesn't need from you. Mm. No one is there uh, for charity uh, or for any reason other than wanting something or needing something. And I didn't trust him. You know, then I got out and I was like, what the fuck are you doing here? You know, and he said, no, I didn't have anything better to be doing. I was like, no, I need you to explain yourself. You know, because I, mean, I don't understand why the fuck you're here right now. I have nothing to give you. You know, I need everything right now. <clears throat> He looked at me and he said, I've been clean for seven years. And he said, on a day-to-day -day basis, I don't worry about getting high. He said, but I lost uh, the desperation that you have. 
said, and that's what keeps me clean long term. And you remember earlier when I was telling you about not knowing what the list of things is? Yeah. Yeah, he's probably going to die soon because he relapsed not long ago and he's been on a fucking tear ever since. Oh, man. And he's one I'm not ready to bury. Saved my life. He showed up every day. Took me to a meeting. <clears throat> he bought me a burrito every day. I was sleeping in a fucking pile of dirt behind the Claremont Mesa on 805, behind the Motel 6 off Claremont Mesa on 805. I would wake up every morning and... Uh, so you weren't even in a car. You were in... No, I was homeless, homeless. I wasn't... Uh, you were literally on the street. I don't get... And, and I, it's interesting. When people have, like, cars and hotel rooms and shit, yeah. I don't consider that homeless. Like, yeah. I never did. I guess I do now, you know. So but when like, he dropped you off, you were literally sleeping... He dropped me off in the parking lot of the Motel 6. I walked through it to the back to the frontage road that ran along the side of the highway, and I slept in the dirt underneath the tree. And, uh, Did you have a blanket or anything? Yeah, I had a, I had a sleeping bag. And, and Jody, uh, my sponsor, he uh, kept all my shit in the back of his truck, um, you know, uh, so I didn't have to carry it around. So he'd meet me once a day, and I'd change clothes, and he'd buy me a burrito. And take this me is the guy, Jody. Yeah. And so I wake up in the morning. I would call a couple of treatment facilities that I was waiting for a bed at, and they wouldn't have one. And if I had a dollar, uh, I'd walk down to McDonald's to get a coffee. And then uh, I would Was walk. he still meeting you every day? Yeah, yeah. This is in the morning, though. He, he had a job. You know, he couldn't meet me first thing in yeah, the morning. Yeah. So I'd walk down there to the McDonald's, and then I'd walk a couple miles back over to the Serenity Shop, and I'd sit on the sidewalk in front of the Serenity Shop, and I'd go to every fucking meeting until the sun went down. It's the only way I knew how to stay clean. Where were these meetings? Uh, at the Serenity Shop in Claremont, Mesa, oh, okay. Claremont Mesa okay. Boulevard. And so there's a store with like programs, like big books and tokens and shit like that. And they this have is right down here. Sort of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it still here? Oh, I'm sure it is. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, um, I, I did that, and I met some good people in recovery. Um, and what would the meetings entail when you go in there? Just regular Narcotics Anonymous meetings or alcoholic, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. You just Anonymous. Talk, talk it out? Yeah, you share. Um, it's hard. It's, you know, sometimes it's a step study or sometimes it's just an open sharing meeting. They have different kinds of meetings, but, um, you know, sometimes it's a men's meeting or a book study or whatever, but I would just go to all of them, you know. Uh, and one day someone told me about the Salvation Army. Uh, we were downtown. They take uh, people on a first-come, first-served basis. And I thought to myself, all right, well, I'm homeless in Claremont. I can be homeless downtown. So I went downtown. And uh, it was like the last night I spent on the street, I kept on showing up to the Salvation Army every morning, but I had my dog with me. And the program director kept on turning me away. We well, can't have a dog. I'm like, yeah, I know, man. As soon as you have a bed for me, my sponsor said he will come pick the dog up. I just need to know, you know, is there a bed? Turned me away for a few days. And I'm sleeping across the street from the public library downtown i get woken up by the homeless outreach team um, they're like you know where the fuck you are <laughs> you know um and i told them what was going on they took me over to the salvation army and the program director started giving me a hard time about the dog again and the the guys on the homeless outreach team is part of the police san diego police they told him like hey we'll drive his dog to his sponsor do you have a bed for him you know and they let me in and that day it started raining and I, it was wow. raining when they took my uh, picture for my badge, and just fucking my smile was just ear to ear, dude. <laughs> you know, because I like I wasn't out there on the street in the rain. I didn't have to. I didn't have to experience that. And uh, so the Salvation Army is pretty intense. You get a lot of churching. Um, What's that? Uh, a lot of church. 
Okay, the, the chapel. Um, it's, yeah. You know, chapel five days a week, church services on Wednesday and Sunday, and you work for them. They give you a job. Uh, I rode around on a truck and picked up uh, donations, deliveries, and, and brought them back to the warehouse every day. And uh, six-month residential treatment program. So one of the things that Jody did for me when he met me and, and I told him about all my charges is, uh, God, he did so many things for me, but he got me a spiral-bound notebook, and he said, okay, this is your meeting log. He said, every time you go to a meeting between now and sentencing, he said, you're going to have the, uh, the program secretary sign and date it that you were there and you know label the meeting he goes when you go to court to get sentenced you're going to stand in front of the judge and you're going to tell him that all of your crimes were drug inspired and that you have voluntarily began a program of treatment um, to rectify that for yourself and then you're going to show him your meeting log and he's going to be able to see that you've been to 100 meetings in the last 30 days you know that kind of thing Um, got me a a throwaway cell phone so i could talk to my dad and call the programs Um, you know interacted with my family for me Um, So I got clean, and uh, I went to sentencing, and I was able to uh, put together such a a good story that uh, I ended up only being uh, convicted of a single felony charge uh, for using another person's identifying information, which in the state of California is what's called a wobbler. Uh, So after 18 months, uh, assuming you haven't gotten any other trouble, you can petition to have it reduced to a misdemeanor and expunged. Um, So I have a clean record. Um, I have no felony convictions. Uh, I have, uh, to go from where I was to where I am at now is such a fucking moonshot. You know what I mean? You only get, you only ever get one, right? Like, um, so, and this is where, like, I start kind of scrapping my way back out. So, uh, I graduated from the program. Um, Jody, uh, talked to my dad about helping me, uh, with the sober living for a while in the sober living I started working um, as an electrician's assistant um, to a buddy's dad uh, who ran an electric uh, who was an electrician and making nine dollars an hour pulling wire um, you know and uh, Jody buys his first house it's a property with two houses on it uh, and he says you're moving into the house next door um, <clears throat> gave me a really good deal on rent rented me one of the rooms sold me his motorcycle let me make payments on it um, and so I had a place to live and I had transport, you know, and, uh, while I was getting clean, um, I was voluntarily celibate, uh, for 13 months. Um, I didn't interact with women at all. Um, the idea being trying to figure out who I am and what I need, um, and, and getting better. And, uh, so when I was ready to start looking, I, I went on plenty of fish and I wrote this really stupid corny profile, you know, but it was very honest about what I wanted, you know, looking for someone who makes me excited to get up in the morning, you know, smile at my phone when you text kind of thing. And, uh, I met my wife. Um, she reached out to me. She was the first girl that messaged me directly. Dude, how, how transparent were you? Uh, so I'll tell you. Um, and from the first conversation, the first time she texted me, I knew it was different. It was amazing. So we met after talking for a few days she was leaving a friend's passion birthday party and met me at, in a parking lot in Mira Mesa and hopped on my motorcycle and took a ride with me. And I kissed her afterwards, and I remember thinking to myself, <laughs> I'm fucked, you know what I mean? Like, I'm already... And I remember thinking, like, uh, I can't lose her in three months. 
You know what I mean? Like, if this is going to happen, it's going to happen tonight. I'm going to tell her everything. But I'm going to scare her off. I'm going to scare her off right now. Um, you know, I don't want my heart in it. You know, I, I, I bear my soul. I tell her everything. Um, she's still interested. Uh, and then shortly after that conversation, I have to tell her, like, hey, uh, I make $9 an hour. I have X amount of bills. I'm really into you, but if you want to see me, it's going to be a lot of, like, spaghetti at my house and dinners on TV because I can't afford to pay for dates. You know, and that's a hard thing to say to a girl, right? Yeah. Man, she paid for the dates for, like, <laughs> the first year. And uh, <sighs> it was when I met her. It was when I met her kid. It was when I met Zoe um, that I knew I was going to marry her, you know, because you can hide who you are in front of, like, a person, but you can't hide in front of your kid, not yeah. unless you're just a piece of shit. And, yeah. and she was such a great mom. She had such a beautiful daughter inside and out. Uh, that was it for me. Really, when you met yeah. the daughter? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I'm in the process of ado adopting Zoe now. Um, Zoe is my daughter. She's not. She's not my stepdaughter. Um, it's a different conversation. But um, I, from that point, my life has blossomed into um, now, is hard to accept. You know, and uh, nothing makes me prouder than the life I'm able to provide for my wife and my kids now. Um, I have successfully transitioned uh, back into professional tech culture. And, um, you know, I went from pulling a wire as an electrician's assistant. Uh, I was selling sports supplements on the phone for $12 an hour. And I got a buddy who started a student loan consolidation company. I worked for him for a year. And then I got a job at a wireless ISP, the pyramid building on Miramar, yeah. top floor there. Um, and gave me a job that was more related to marketing than tech, but relied heavily on my tech experience and knowledge. And <laughs> terrible boss, terrible company, got fired, but it was what I needed on my resume to yeah. continue the progression. Then I had a guy take a chance on me um, at a security company, a software company that made um, encryption systems for um, broadcast media, so like Cox, Turner, Cable, Hulu, Netflix, like the backend systems that handle that content distribution and encryption. Uh, this company did that, and I excelled in their engineering department and was quickly promoted. And that company was bought by a French company, and I was laid off. Um, quickly picked up another role as a security engineer with the software shop next door. Um, <coughs> and, uh, you know, uh, one thing led to another. Uh, that job, I had a pretty toxic boss, and I ended up leaving. But in the meantime, I had been talking to a guy at my gym uh, and <laughs> it's kind of funny. He had mentioned to a mutual friend a couple times that he needed help with security, and his friend had told me, and I kind of ignored the guy because I was in the middle of a contest prep for powerlifting. I was pretty aggressive. And, yeah. Um, you know, and uh, he comes up to me one day, and he's like, dude, he really wants to talk to you, but he's afraid. <laughs> he's scared of you. Like, every time you come in, you're, you're so aggressive and angry, and you're just, like, focused on what you're doing, and then you leave. He's like, can you just go ask the guy? And I'm like, yeah, okay, let me go see what problem this guy has with his home router, you know, or like Wi-Fi or whatever yeah. the fucking deal is. So I go shake his hand, and he's like, yeah, I'm the CTO of this multinational um, data center company, and we have 32 colo facilities in 11 countries, and I need help with cybersecurity. And I was like, oh, well, shit, if you had framed it that way, you know, we would have talked a long time ago. Yeah. So I took over the security program um, at this company, and I built it um, from infancy um, through pretty high-level um, certification authorities and uh, left that company and uh, ended up, 
uh, getting competed over um, by a couple companies from there, and, and, and that was really cool. Um, you know, I, I managed to finish um, the top one and two um, certifications in my space uh, at the same time as my undergrad, um, right in time to really make uh, my next transition. And had a cyber liability insurance company that wanted me to come in as um, their senior manager of their program, and I had actually accepted that offer. And I was canceling all my remaining interviews. And uh, I canceled an interview with Disney. I canceled an interview with wow. Meta, Facebook. Uh, I canceled really good interviews. I wow. went to cancel the interview with this company. And their HR director was like pushed back. It was like, no, like you need to have a phone call with our CTO, please. Like at least, you know, just hear him out. And I'm like, okay, like I'll have a phone call. And she's like, great, 7 a.m. tomorrow morning, one hour virtual interview, CTO and SVP of engineering. <laughs> Well, that's not really a phone call. <laughs> so I had this interview, and I do so well with them that they're like, okay, you need to speak with leadership from our other company. This, is a, this position was at the enterprise level above a portfolio of companies. So I interview with tech leadership at the first company. Two o'clock that afternoon, I interview with tech leadership from the second company. Four o'clock that afternoon, I have a call from the HR director, and, and they're telling me, what do we need to give you to make you break your other agreement and sign with us today? And it was... You had your number. <clears throat> yeah, and they beat it. And I doubled my income from my last position, which was like a triple of the position before that. Um, and so now I am the, the director of information security at the enterprise level above a portfolio of some of the most popular websites on the internet that you've certainly heard of and possibly used uh, several times. <coughs> I'm actively uh, in the tr in the process of transitioning um, to the executive leadership level um, with that team there, but I run um, four divisions across three companies, cybersecurity at three, and IT mm -hmm. um, also at one of them. They restructured IT to report into me. And so like now my life today is filled with all these opportunities to really like give back. And I've been able to, um, one of the relationships that I foster a lot now is like guys will come to me asking about tech, how do I get involved? And now that I'm in a position of actual authority, like uh, there's a guy that I've been mentoring for the last couple of years, um, just got married, uh, living with the in-laws, young guy, you know, making his way. Uh, and I was able to give him, you know, a 50% raise and full benefits and hire him onto my IT team, turn him into an engineer, give him enough money for him and his wife to, to move out on their own and have full benefits. Um, you know, another kid that was very passionate and came asking to me uh, about cybersecurity at, um, at the, also at the gym one day. I built an internship program at my last company as a talent funnel specifically to hire him. I trained him for two years. He just got hired by Viasat wow. uh, as, a, as a security software engineer, top secret clearance. Kid's 22 years old. He's making 120 grand. Wow. You know, so the, I, I'm in a place now where uh, I'm able not just through like mentorship and words, but through actual actions um, to change lives, you know, yeah. and that was like one thing I think I learned um, in recovery. Uh, and then it was uh, sponsorship and, and a thing called H&I, hospitals and institutions. It's where you take a meeting into people and facilities that can't get out to meetings themselves. Um, that component of giving back, right? Yeah. It, whatever form it takes, it has to be there. I looked at Jody one day and I said, how do I ever repay you for everything you did for me? How do I, how do I give this back? And he said, Ryan, you can't. Yeah. You can't repay me. He said, you have to do it for someone else. He said, when the opportunity comes up and there's a kid sitting across from you that's not going to fucking make it without you, so you do it for him. He said, that's how you pass it on. 
And so uh, I've tried to carry that forward through my life. And, um, the times that I have the opportunity to share my gifts and uh, elevate people through that or share my story and hopefully um, you know, share something meaningful or helpful with someone, I, I do it. Which is why you accepted this interview. Right. The, the sole reason. Right. Because somebody is going to watch this, listen to this interview. Somebody somewhere may not die. Because of this interview. And so would you say to get you through recovery, this has been the key, is having purpose of helping others? Of it has to be. Yeah, it keeping me there. You know, that's how it keeps you there. That's how you keep engaged. And people don't realize that I, I talk about, like, the things that I've done uh, for Isaiah, that kid I, I told you about, the intern. Uh, to me, they're selfish, right? Because what I get from it is, is so much more valuable uh, than anything that I give you know, like, I'm, I'm glad that I was able to help you, bro, but you keep me alive. Yeah. You know? um, and so for me, giving back is, is quite selfish. <clears throat> and you have two daughters now, mm-hmm. Zoe and Lily, a five Lily. and 11 year old. Yeah. And the five year old is both of yours. Yes. Mm-hmm. How yeah. beautiful is she? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, they're both stunning. Holy is shit. there anything that drives you more than these beautiful children? No, 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 no. No. <laughs> how, 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 how great is your wife? Would you consider her just? Oh God, I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to quantify what my wife means to me. You know, she's the other half of my beating heart. You know, I, none of this would be possible without her. Um, I may, I may have gotten to somewhere something like uh, what I am now. Uh, not the same. No way. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so dude, this has been. I want you to, and this is going to be. I have to do this. Um, in case we can somehow get this to Jody mm-hmm. to listen to this, give him a message right now. Let's, oh, let's finish with a message. If we can, if we can get him to listen to this, I just love you, dude. And I, I just, just, oh, I'm just sitting here waiting for you to be ready to be honest, man. And as soon as you are, brother, I'm, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. You know, that's because he's he's the guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's the one who basically took you over the top. Yep. Whew, man, dude, I cannot thank you enough for coming and sharing this testimony. It was freaking powerful, bro. Powerful. For sure. Thanks for having me. You know, <laughs> this is gonna make an impact. Uh, man, I can't even. I don't even want. I don't even want to tune off right now. But my videographer's like, dude, we're this is it. We're went. This will be my longest one ever, and I want to go more. Yeah. But bro, I, I, I got mad respect. I had thank no you. idea how deep this story went. Um, I'm excited about this to impact lives, and I can't. I'm going to send you every single time we get it. You t- when you get DMs on this, I want you to l- send them to me. Okay. And I'm going to send you every feedback that I get. Yeah. And then, and then let's get Jody to listen to this because he needs to hear this. Sure. So he knows how much you care about him and, and that you owe him. You know, uh, like that's just pretty much everything. Yeah. Cool. All right, man. Yeah. Dude, appreciate it, bro. Real deal talk. That's a wrap. <laughs> right there, baby. Uh.